Welcome back to the Just End the Suffering podcast, which I talk about New York sports, the perspective of a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Let's do a little bit of pop culture on the podcast. Our third final episode of the week, our second annual Halloween pop culture party. If you're looking for the sports stuff this week, you can go back to Monday when I talked to Andy Sarbelli about the World Series matchup between the Houston Astros and the Atlanta Braves, or Wednesday, did week's eight NFL picks. But here we are today. We're doing a Halloween pop culture special. We're going to dive into four very interesting things that come out over the last month or so. We're going to start off with the hottest movie of the year so far, Dune. We'll be joined by the great John Stango. We'll talk all about that in just a minute. We are also going to join, be joined by the great Alan Austin. We're going to talk about Midnight Mass, the latest horror series from Mike Flanagan. Which all great stuff there. Then we join our pop culture correspondent, Sandra. Let's talk about the number one show on Netflix, Squid Game. Over 94 million people have watched it. Sam and I did. We're going to break it down. A little bit of the legends of the Hidden Temple, too. Why you should not watch that one. We'll give you that in a bit. And the end of the show, the Sky Guys are here. Pete Constantine, Nick Frayer. We're talking about the Lego Star Wars Halloween special, Terrifying Tales. That's the end of the podcast. I'm going to throw out the blanket spoiler warning right now to start us off here. We're going to be diving into spoilers on all of these things. If you have not seen any of them, dip out. If you do not want to be spoiled, otherwise, stick around. We're going to start off with some Dune right after this. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you're going tomorrow? Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the advanced team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to give me court-martial? Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. To the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. Well, if I'm not dead, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son.
All right, we are back here on the Halloween Pop Culture Party 2 podcast. This year, we are starting off with the big movie of the week. Dune is out. Dune has gotten a lot of positive reviews here. Joining me today on the podcast to break it all down, our resident film critic, John Stanko, is here. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing? Doing pretty good, I'd say. It did pick me up to get a chance to check out this movie, which I know was supposed to come out last year. COVID delayed it, and it has been very well received. I think it's been well received by everybody. Uh, critics have liked it a lot. Fans, both of the book, of the original book, and just of the movie as a whole, seem to enjoy it as well. I think Denis Villeneuve has stepped onto something and his ambition has hit the mark and this thing is getting rave reviews and it'll be around for the rest of the year and heading into award season as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a movie I'm excited about. And last year we kicked off the Halloween pop culture party with the Mandalorian season premiere came out around this time. But this year, I think the movie, I think it was a more wide stream appeal than Mando. Yeah, I would say so, but I mean, there's some comparisons you can make there about a prophetic figure needing to take the course and change history. So you can draw some strings between Dune and Star Wars, and I think especially with the visuals that Denis Villeneuve put into the movie, definitely some Star Wars uh, connotations there with the dual moons and the dual suns and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And before we go any further, we're going to play the spoiler warning here. I did the main spoiler soundtrack at the top of the show, but... For the rest of the podcast, and some of the stuff I'm covering later on here is a bit darker and gloomier, we're going to have an uplifting uh, spoiler song here. So here's where we're going with the spoilers for the rest of the podcast. All right, you've been warned, John. If they have not watched Dune, they need to stop the podcast right now. Go watch Dune and come back once they want to be spoiled. Yeah, safe to say. And there's a lot to talk about with this movie, so we're going to be touching <laughs> on a lot of different things. Absolutely. And let's start off here with the way this movie was made. I mean, there was a failed attempt this back in 84 with, uh, what's his name? Uh, David Lynch tried to do it. He got, yeah, he, yeah he's, his proposed cut got slashed down. They had to cut a lot out. It would not end up well. What what's the background here with this? How do we end up getting this thing being so iconic? People want to make a movie out of it. Well, Dune is known as a book that cannot be made to film or to TV. It is a book full of lore. It is a book that is, frankly, you need to be have like kind of like an acid trip kind of mind to understand everything that is in the story of Dune, not just the original book, but in the series as a whole. So, I mean, the first attempt at it was David Lynch back in the eighties and he tried to concise the entire first book into one, two, two and a half hour movie. And in the process, really changed the entire story, changed the entire vibe and cut out too many crucial parts. Now, with that being said, in the years past, people have grown to appreciate the movie for a cult movie, has some positive aspects. I watched it. I was entertained, though I understood it wasn't a good and well-made movie, if you will. And David Lynch... Um, really kind of disowned the movie uh, and said it wasn't his original dream and just too many people got their hands in it. Uh, there was another attempt by an American uh, French uh, filmmaker, uh, Jodorowsky, I believe his name is. There was a documentary that came out about him and the drawings that he had for Dune, his aspirations of it about five or six years ago. Um, but that movie never came to fruition either. And now it comes to Denis Villeneuve, who is a man known for his ambition with every movie he's ever made. And this, I guess, 
was a passion project of his. And we have Doom Part 1 that finally came out. It took a long time to come out. As you mentioned, supposed to come out COVID last year, but we finally got it this past weekend. And thankfully, he didn't cut much from the book. It's very, very true to the telling, and it's true to the, the vibe and the symbolism as well that's intertwined throughout the story. So we finally got here, Mike, and guess what? It's really good. It is really good. And you also took the step further. You went back and read the book again. You had the audio book version, I believe you said on the podcast here. So how helpful was that for you to keep track of what was going on here? Because I did not have that luxury. So I admit, like, it was very dense for me. Once I got into the flow, I started really enjoying it. I mean, it it was a huge help. Um, Just understanding the houses, their relationship, the language of Dune, which there's a lot of words that are just kind of thrown around. You just kind of have to understand um, the different secret agendas from the Bene Gesserit to the Harkonnens to the Atreides to the Emperor and all those political intertwining battles that happened. It was incredibly helpful. Um, I think my girlfriend loved it as well because I was able to give her a three to five minute synopsis of who everyone was before going in. So she was able to understand everything as it happened. Um, and I think what's really good about if you read the book, you pick up on some of the non-verbal storytelling that Villeneuve and the screenwriters are doing within this movie, hinting at things that happen in the book, but not necessarily saying them outright. So if you have the extra knowledge, you're able to pick that up and see the visual storytelling that Villeneuve is saying, but also realize how concise and how, honestly, I I don't want to say perfect, Mike, but just darn great job they did of never cutting out an important scene from the book, but they were able to shrink every scene down to its essence. And sure, there are some shortcuts taken in conversations that are cut down for lengthwise, but they never took out anything important. They perfectly shrink wrapped this for everyone to understand whether you read the book or you didn't. Yeah, for those who have not read the book, how long is the book? Uh, the book in terms of audio hours was about 28 hours long. Jeez. I believe. <laughs> it, it's long, man. It's yeah. thick. Like yeah. it's, it's like Game of Thrones. They, they said how Game of Thrones can never be like transcribed to this to the screen right there were too many characters too many movie pieces yeah. the same thing is said for dune yeah the way i look at this movie when i was watching it this sort of feels like a game of thrones star wars had a baby and then like this was what they came up with yeah i think that's right i think you throw in some lord of the rings in there with some of the fantasy aspects and the premonitions and stuff it it, it really is a lot like that you can describe the houses like you would uh from game of thrones the harkonnens are the lannisters the starks or the Atreides, like you can make those direct comparisons and make it easy for everyone to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And for, like you said, you gave uh, your girlfriend the three to five minute synopsis here to help people, like help her get away from the movie. Like you want to give a three, like a short synopsis in your opinion, like the general premise of where we got to in part one. So where we got to in part one was, so part one of the movie is parts one and two of the original book. Um, And so, I mean, we have the dueling political ideals of we got the Atreides, we got the Harkonnens, we have the emperor who thinks that both of these houses under his rule are getting a little bit too powerful. I don't know how deep you want me to get into the plot, but basically the Atreides take over, uh, take over the the, uh, house, uh, take over the planet Arrakis, informally known as Dune, from the Harkonnens. The Harkonnens are not happy about it at all. They devise a plan with the Bene Gesserit to get their planet back and to kill the Atreides family. And amongst this Atreides family is this young boy by the name of Paul, who has been genetically bred by the Bene Gesserit and his mother, Lady Jessica, to be the Azum El Gaib. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, tough language, but the El Gaib, a person who would 
meld the idea of mind and time and be a unifying prophet for the entire universe. And so this story is about some of the political intertwinings, the Harkonnens getting the best of the Atreides, and the growth of Paul and learning what his destiny may be. This movie does not go all the way there. It stops right before it gets really meta, but it's parts one and two of the book. And as Zendaya, as as Cheney says at the end of the movie, this is only the beginning. Yeah, perfect line to end the movie, because I do think, some of it in the layman's terms, people who are watching it, like, you are basically following Paul the whole movie and Timothy Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet's character, and he's the he- we're going on the hero's journey with him where we see where he's basically starting his quest to, I would say, I'm not going to spoil the end of the book here, like it's sort of be the leader of his people and stuff like that and unify different groups and stuff, so, so on and so forth, where we see him lose his entire support system basically along the way. Like his father dies and he, like, everybody except his mother like dies and then he ends up with the native people, the Frani- like the Franier tribe or... Yeah, the Fremen, yeah. The Fremen tribe, and that's where we end the movie. So I thought it was, basically, you realize that you go in knowing that this is part one of a two-part epic here. I think you understand it much better. If you're like, hey, there's more coming. Yeah, I, now, it was not advertised as that, which was an interesting choice, I think, to many as to why they didn't advertise this as part one. But we were talking before the podcast that there was no for sure that part two was going to be greenlit, even though... I cannot imagine in closed doors that part two and three weren't already greenlit. They're going to happen eventually. But again, if you understand this is only the first part of the journey, you'll be able to appreciate this movie for a lot more. Uh, it's a lot like the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie. Some people complain that that ending wasn't great because nothing really happened. You didn't know where the story was going from there. It wasn't satisfying. Some people are saying this about Dune, but have faith in the story. Have faith Have faith in Bill New because the story gets wild really fast. Yeah, because like, Apart from like moving uh, Paul Chalamet's character along the plot here, not much else happens in terms of like you get like big picture stuff being set up. There's a lot of setup in this movie, I think. I mean, people who say things don't happen. We have major characters die. We got political backstabbing. We got exposition thrown in there as well. There's good hand to hand combat. There's explosions. There's giant sandworms. Mike, there's plenty of stuff that happens in this movie. So I don't buy anyone who says that nothing happens. I'm just saying that not the most of what could have happened happens within part one. Be ready for part two when shit gets even more crazy. Yeah, for sure. And let's dive into some of this cast here. As we mentioned Timothy Chalamet already, but there are a lot of heavy hitters in this cast. You have Zendaya, who's barely in this movie, by the way. She's been a much bigger part of part two, but she's been basically appearing in like sort of flash forwards for Paul, where he sees glimpses mm-hmm. of his future. We had Oscar Isaac. We had... Jason Momoa, we had a lot of heavy hitters in this cast. Dave Batista. I feel like if you know somebody was an interesting actor, but they were in here somewhere. Yeah, I mean, th- this movie had had a ton of people. Josh Brolin, you can't forget. Javier Bardem as well. Stellan Skarsgård. This movie had a ton of people. So, I mean, I want to ask you, Mike, who stood out to you when you're watching this movie? The characters, the performances, were. was there anyone that stood out to you? I have to say, I, I, I appreciate Oscar Isaac's work there as uh as is, as the father of the Atreus clan, as Leto, but I think he yeah. had a very good role there. I also thought the the doctor who had to stab them in the back to try and get his wife back also gave a very nuanced performance. Yeah, it was very good. I agree with you that Oscar Isaac probably, if you're going to look at a performance that is award-worthy, quote-unquote, I think Oscar Isaac has that part where he brought the humanity to a fantasy science fiction story and the way he approached things uh, he had a lot of subtle acting to do, but he also got to give a big speech to Paul about no matter what, Paul is still his son. So he kind of hit all those hallmarks and he did a really good job. 
um, and with, with the role of Duplay to Atreides. And I think one thing we can say is that he's not going to win any awards, but Jason Momoa was having a blast as Duncan Idaho in this movie. Oh, he was having so you much fun. You had the most fun role, right? Yeah. I mean, he shows up, he's basically fighting people. He's being the big brother to Paul. Like he's enjoying yeah. himself. Yeah. He gets to be sassy. He gets to crack some jokes. He gets to kick some ass. I mean, there's no denying Jason Momoa. I don't know if it's just the kind of character that he plays in every movie he is, but he's just having a blast in this movie and you're rooting for him. He's one of the few characters who smiles. There's not a lot of smiling. There's not a lot of laughing in this movie, but he's kind of the one who emotes the most. Yeah, absolutely. And I, what do you think of uh, Chalamet's performance? Because I feel like he had to do a very delicate balance of like trying to understand responsibility at the same time, not be like a whiny teen, like some of these like pro- superheroes. Be like, he avoided having the Luke Skywalker eyes in episode four, I think, where he avoided having like the I want my like I want to go to Tashi Station get some power converters moment. I think he did a pretty good job balancing that. I think he did a really good job. I think he did a great job of balancing the wonder of him being a young a young kid. He's supposed to be 15 years old, I believe. In the book, he's 15. He's, I think he's a little bit older in the movie here. But a young man being immersed in a world that he's not used to. There's a shot where the ambassador for the emperor and his sh- the ships of the ambassador are coming down onto Caladan, the home planet of the Atreides. And it's them coming down slowly. It's Villeneuve setting the scene for this ambassador ceremony that's going to happen. And then the next shot is Paul Atreides looking up at the sky in awe. So he did a great job of showing he's still young in this world, but he also had the scene with the, the Gong Jubar test yes. with the, the ma, lady mother of the Benny Gesserit where he stuck his hand in the box for the test of pain and willpower. That acting in that scene was incredible for Chalamet because when he stares up, uh, I need to remember the mother's name. She's played by Charlotte Rampling, Reverend Mother Mohiam of the Benny Gesserit. You see his eyes lock with hers behind the veil and he's balancing different emotions in that stare of pain, of determination, of anger, of frustration. Phenomenal acting there. Um, so I think Shalomay did a really, really good job having to balance a lot of things. It's going to get even more a little bit wonky when uh, Paul gets more godlike and gets more premonitions. And I want to see how crazy Villeneuve and Shalomay take it. But even when this movie started to get a little bit more trippy with the visions as it went on, it was still based in some realism, which is a credit to Chalamet and the screenplay. Yeah, definitely. I want to touch on Paul's powers set for sure, because like we get a little we get teases of what he can do. Like we get like the snippets of him learning about the voice, where it's basically like translates some sort of like he speaks, he controls the minds of other people, and then we see some of his future visions and we see other things he can do. So I got to feel like the further we get along in this, I, it wasn't a ton in part one. I feel like once you get to part two and part three, like he's going to start being like God level powers. Yeah. Um, in terms of the book that I've read, the original book, he definitely grows more accustomed to the powers that he is able to develop. Um, though with that being said, while he's also understanding the powers that he has being the, the, uh, the Benny Jesuits, Muslim Al-Gaib kind of figure where he control time and space he's also learning the desert power of the fremen and so that's kind of a battle that he has in the book is the uh tangible ability in the desert to learn the trade of the fremen and what makes them strong as people and also the the intangible abilities for him to see forward in time and the different futures that he has for himself and for the people he cares about so that's what happens in part three of the book is he's battling these two things and has to weigh one or the other at times so he's going to have a challenge with doing that. He becomes a very powerful figure and he has to grow into leadership. 
like uh, like Duke Leto says in the movie that there's a call that Paul will answer if he wants to, and that moment comes for him in part three of the book, which may, may or may not be directly connected to his powers. That I won't spoil for you, Mike, because you haven't read it and you don't know. Yeah, I do not know. Which I'm fine staying unspoiled on that because I don't think I'm going to have the time to read all of Dune like, anytime soon. So I'll take You my- got till 2020, 2023. Yeah. So you can read that first book. Yeah, well, right now we're t- there's stuff going on behind the scenes. I'm potentially going back and watching Game of Thrones, like so I can be ready for that for the prequel show. So that might take that, practice. That's yeah, that will, that's going to take a lot of time. That will. So I don't know if I'll get to Dune. So I'll leave that off of there for now. But what other performances did you stand out to you in the cast? Uh, I love Javier Bardem as Stilgar. Um, the vibe of this character, the it was just so perfectly played by Bardem. The when he's first introduced to Duke Leto uh gunner and the whole atreides family spits on the floor they think it's an insult but really duncan idaho is like no 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 it's a sign of respect yeah he's relinquishing his liquid for you um everything about him was very funny when he meets with lady jessica at the end of the movie and he's like oh i didn't know you were a wielder of weapons and like (laughs) and is it just kind of like is humbled but accepts the humble moment that he has he's not too egotistical with it javier bardem was great as stilgar uh he's just a great actor and he fit the vibe really well and then stellan skarsgård i want to give a shout out to playing baron harkonnen his voice is what makes this character work really well yeah because the way he's portrayed in the movie is different than the book in the book he's like a sluggish ugly unable to move type of guy but really he's described like a job of the hut type of person again comparing this to star wars but that's what he's described like in the book in the movie he has a little bit more freedom in terms of mobility with uh, the floating pants basically just floating over the over the ground and but Stellan skarsgård's voice work and the evil that he's able to tune into Whenever he's talking to whatever character he's talking to, you can just tell he's innately malevolent. And so I want to give credit to Skarsgård for that because he didn't have a lot of screen time in part one here. He becomes more of an asset in part two going forward, but he's a, he did a really good job as as the Baron. Yeah, for sure. And I also want to touch on here, the thing I think that's got winning this movie Oscars is just the visuals and the scope of this film. It's like you really transports you into like a whole other world when you're watching the movie. Like the visuals are just stunning, whether it's, the Dune planet itself, whether it's like the space, like spaceships, all of the stuff like that. You, the visuals they do in here, I mean, the, starts immediately. I think beginning when you first see Shani and the Fremen, when you see the blue eyes from the exposure of the spice, like that, that they did that very well, or it doesn't look like cartoonish, but potentially it could have. No, I mean, this is just Denny Villeneuve being an absolute magician. Yeah. This is just, this is just what he does. He is so good at measuring out scale and scope in every movie that he does. He takes his time setting the scenes, but then he's able to put the scene in perspective where it will still shock you. The 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 uh, the spaceships look small in space, but then when they're on the planet, they look massive. The people next to the space, everything is in, everything is framed for you to take it and make an observation about how big something is compared to something else. The flyover, um on dune the, of the major city where paul and his family are staying it reminded me of minas tirith from lord of the rings return of the king with that scale that peter jackson built where they had that overhead shot just showing everything about minas tirith heading up to the top it was that kind of visual that's really really cool everything about this movie the scale of it is just utterly phenomenal i think denny villeneuve and ryan johnson are two of the best doing this right now 
So everything about this movie from a visual standpoint is phenomenal. And I think you look at it just from a directing standpoint too, and able to connect the story visually that way, you got to think Villeneuve is going to be in the best director running at the Oscars because nobody thought Dune could be made into a good movie and he's already made it into something that everyone appreciates. So that's got to give him extra bonus points too, besides just the way it looks. Yeah, I was also thinking about the scale thing you mentioned earlier is the fact that you see these shots, especially like on the on the planet itself, on Arrakis, where you see Paul and Lady Jessica look so tiny compared to these big dunes they have to traverse to get to the Fremen like drive. So I thought it was fascinating. It's, it's again, playing with perspective. You have to make sand look interesting. Yeah. It's not, that's not an easy thing to make interesting. It's a bland landscape. Yeah. It's just orange and brown, but they make it look interesting. And also, in terms of the visuals and the scope, I think something we talked about spaceships, right? We talked about buildings. We talked about planets. The sandworms. We can't go this long without talking about the sandworms. No. Dude, they were dope. Yes. There's a chance that those could have been so cheesy, Mike. Those could have been just, oh, that's ugly. Oh, that's just, that's, that's obscene. But no, the way he works them into the story it's just, it's kind of like a natural monster. There was no big reveal of a, of, of like a sandworm. It was just like, they were there, they were a part of the environment. And so it forced the audience to appreciate it as just part of that world. There was no massive, ooh, shocking moment. Yeah. So they were, they were awesome. And the, and the scale of those as well, just super cool. So again, the scope and the visuals of this movie are really, really well done. Yeah, for sure. And Again, I'm not gonna, we're, we're not going to attempt to go through the plot beat by beat here because, again, we could spend three hours on this if we wanted to, going through the plot. Mm-hmm. But I would say, let's go here. What's your most memorable moment here? What stuck out the most of you watching this movie? What was the most memorable point of this film? So the Gamju Bar scene in the beginning with Paul and the the mother lady Jess, uh, a mother of the Benny Jesserit, I thought that scene was phenomenal. That scene opens up the book, and it's riveting, and it grabs you right away, as did this scene. I thought it was phenomenal. Rebecca Ferguson acting out the nervousness of Lady Jessica because she knows what's at stake with this test, even when Paul doesn't necessarily know. I thought that scene was remarkable. Um, I love the introduction of the uh, the Sardaukar uh, when they are brought on as part of the Emperor's Warrior, helping out the Harkonnens. When they were lowered down um, onto Arrakis through the ropes quietly and just surrounding the Atreides army. That's a really cool intro to these deadly warriors, which I really enjoyed something I knew and I wasn't expecting. Um, but there's one shot that I'm just going to be nerdy about that. I f- freaking love Mike. And it was when they were still on Caledon. It's early on in the movie, but it's Villeneuve doing some visual storytelling that, People who read the book may recognize and people may pay not. But there's a scene that after Paul talks to his father, Paul reaches into a puddle and then he picks up sand underneath the puddle. And it's a split second thing. It's only just like Paul, like seeing the landscape around him. Right. But if you think about it, I mean, Dune is a sand planet. Paul is reaching for the sand where he's born was Caladan a planet that was rich with water and resources that are needed to grow. Paul is reaching into both environments and able to put his hand on both and feel both. That is visual storytelling of the fate of Paul and what he can mean for the Fremen and everyone that is on Dune. That piece of visual storytelling, that is just a two second small cut that nobody would think was that that important. Watching the movie, I was like, Villeneuve knows exactly what he is doing. That was one of the most memorable moments for me where I knew that I was in great hands. Yeah, I'd say I definitely love this thing going all the way through. I did think 
once you go in, I think they did a good job not teasing it out, but once they put part one on the screen on the title screen at the beginning of it, you say, okay, like they intend there's more of a story. You're not gonna have a nice neat ending here. Like they gave you an ending point, but like there, you know there's plenty more story coming. There is plenty of more story coming. And I believe there's the plan is to make, I believe this a trilogy, which is going to go over the three books. Yeah. So there are three main books as well, which I will now read be reading the other two for sure. So there's a lot of story to tell. I don't know all of it, but all I know is that part three of the original book, some big events happen. And the ending of the original Doom book is tense to say the least. So very excited for what's in the future. Yeah, it sounds like a good place where I could see them going like, especially in part two, if you're going to have that be the middle part of your trilogy here, that a good place. If it's the end of book one is tent of the first book of Dune is, t- is very intense. Good place to start and just hook your arm and say, Ooh, come back in two years, two years for the uh, end of the trilogy here. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm now I'm really curious if they're going to film, if this is going to be a trilogy, if they're going to film parts two and three together at the same time to save time, Again, I'm just saying time a lot, but to save time for the crew and the actors and everything, just to get those two movies done at the same time. Because it's not often that a huge blockbuster like this films the first movie and then everyone goes away. Yeah. It's not like Lord of the Rings where Peter Jackson just filmed the entire three movie set all at the same time. So be curious to see what they do with the sequels when they're coming forward. But regardless, I think everyone should be excited. I'll be excited too. I also feel like I'm encouraged. I feel like this is not going to be Avatar where we have this one stellar movie that we never hear about again for another 15 years. No. Like, this we're going to actually get this in two years. Yeah, Villeneuve is not going to let that happen. And also you should take a huge sign of credit as to why Dune is just good is that Christopher Nolan freaking loved it too. Yeah. He went on the record saying that Dune was awesome. So that's another person who says everyone should check it out. Yeah, and when Christopher Nolan puts a stamp approval on something, you pay attention. Yeah, I would say so. Now we got to just look for Quentin Tarantino's opinion. And if he says yes, it's green check marks all around. Yeah. And what's the grade on this one on the Stanko scale? I gave this movie an A minus. I think the only tidbit that you could take away from it is maybe it's a tad bit too long with uh, Paul and Lady Jessica in the desert looking for the Fremen. Maybe just a smidge. But I plan on rewatching this. My grade may change on my rewatch, but it is, a eight, is an A minus and 4.5 out of 5 stars. A very high praise from John Snaco. Yes. And also, fun fact, every De- uh, Denny Villeneuve movie I've seen thus far in my spreadsheet has been an A-. minus. I've seen five of his movies, uh, and they've all been A-. minus. So guess what? He's just really good. Yeah, he is really good. And we're going to put it out there to do and go see it, and if possible, get to a theater and see it, because the big screen makes a gigantic difference. Oh, you need to. And the score, too. Let's not forget Hans Zimmer. Uh, it is loud. It is in your face. And it is very... Uh, percussion heavy and choral heavy there's a lot of singing that goes on in the background of some important scenes and you get the most of that when you go to a movie theater yeah what was the theater experience like for you when you went the theater experience like for me there was only probably about 10 to 15 people in there pretty empty but it was good the people around me and my girlfriend behaved which was nice no cell phones pulled out which was wonderful i wish that they would have cranked the sound up a little bit more in our theater but you know what mike we're back in the theater that's all that matters i'm happy about that yeah, I also mentioned here, John Snake went out like, in the middle of the day on a football Sunday. It's probably why there are only 10 to 15 people in the theater. Oh, I did. You know what? It was a, not a good football slate for this Saturday or this Sunday. So I was like, this is a date weekend. Saturday, I'll go out with Emma and her friends and my friends too, but like her friends from her friends from home. Sunday, I'll do the movie and we'll do a nice French dinner out. So that's what we did. But Mike, you want to know the one know another great part about Dune? What's that? One more thing. I turn my phone back on at Dune. It's around 4.30, 4.45. I turn my phone back on. I check out the Patriots jet score. 54 <laughs> points. Goodness gracious. 
was not expecting that when I turned back on my phone. So that was another nice extra bonus point at the end of Dune. Yeah, we're not we're moving on here. Okay, all right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's fun talking Dune. And next up here on the Halloween Pop Culture Party Podcast, we're going to go to Netflix. We're going to do Midnight Mass Alan Austin. You have seen this as well. What do you think? What do you think about the show when you watched it? I thought the show was good, up to very good, and some certain episodes were excellent. Though, Mike, my hot take is that I thought the finale was by far the worst episode of the entire series. Um, very disappointed with the ending, but still, as a whole, I recommend the show to people. Though, in terms of Flanagan's TV show work and movie work of recent years, I will put this one below uh, Haunting of Hill House, below Bly Manor, below Dr. Sleep, the director's cut. So it's in terms of fourth um, amongst those three most recent things, but still very enjoyable, very good, well above average. But in terms of what Flanagan can deliver, was disappointed with the finish. All right. So that's John's take. I will go now to my conversation with Alan Austin. We're going to talk. We're going to break the whole thing down for you. All seven episodes of Midnight Mass right after this. I walked across an empty land. I knew the pathway like the back of my hand. Welcome home, honey. Where you belong. Is this the place we used to love? Is this the place that I've been dreaming of? I know you struggled with what happened. With what I did. Yes, with what you did. But help is here. A simple thing. Where have you gone? Good morning. I know I'm not who you expected to see. Just know I'm only here to help, and I look forward to meeting you all. So tell me when you're gonna let me in. I'm a pretty rational guy. Miraculous time. You're gonna let me in. You're gonna let me in. I think I'm crazy. I mean, what's a little crazy between friends, right? Come on. What are you doing? Come on. What is wrong with you? Stop it. It's not funny. with us for what comes next. All right, we are back here on the Just on the Suffering Halloween Pop Culture Party year number two. Last year, I did a draft with this guy. This year, we found one thing we're watching. Alan Austin is here. Alan, how are you? Mike, it's. I feel like it's been so, so long since I've been on the show, and I am honored and flattered that you had me back. And talking about stuff we both are into, so I'm, I'm raring to go here, especially for the, the, the topic we have. Yeah, and for the 
the inside baseball people with the podcast. I mean, technically, this is coming out before Alan does NFL picks for week seven, uh, <laughs> after, but we're recording before. So that's, that's why it makes no sense. Because other than that, we've not had Alan on the podcast, I think, early summer before the Olympics. Yes, yes. It was before the Olympics, and it feels like ages ago. It absolutely does. We actually saw met in person before you came back on the podcast. So that is true. Yeah, that is true. We talked about Batman at a soccer game. That was also more fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was. We yeah. did. We we were on the live call comparing a player wearing a face mask to Batman and seeing where he ranked in our favorite Batman because Batman, I guess should say, because a soccer player wearing a mask is still better than some Batman. Yes, this is true. And we're not gonna name names here, but <coughs> George, George Clooney. <coughs> Oh, Mike, bless you. Oh, thank you. But we're going to get on here. We're The topic we're talking about today, this is part of the four-part Halloween special here. John Stanka was in here a little bit ago talking about Dune. So pumped about that movie. But now we're talking about the latest Mike Flanagan thriller for Netflix, Midnight Mass. And once I saw this coming out here in time for Halloween, I said, Alan, we are doing this. I I got to be honest with you. I've been so busy this past year that the the fact that it was coming out kind of snuck up on me. Like I knew it was coming because I I follow Mike Flanagan's career ever since I've just been blown away by almost everything, you know, he's done. And the only reason I say almost everything is because I just haven't seen everything. Everything I've seen of Mike Flanagan's, I've been over the moon about. So I knew this was coming. And I knew that my boy, Matt Saracen from Friday Night Lights had a major role, Zach Guilford. So I was raring to go and, the fact that it came out when it did is what snuck up on me. So when it came out, I think you actually were the first person to be like, hey, it's out. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I got to watch. And I'm so, so glad I did. Yeah. And I mean, this month of September, I felt like everything started streaming at once or, or coming out at once. You had this come out, like the American Crime Story impeachment on Bill Clinton is out. The Lost Symbol for Dan Brown on HBO came out. So like on, on Peacock, excuse me, and then. This one, like, there's a lot of different stuff going on. That's why I made sure I got to. I'm glad I did. Absolutely. And and October is going to be no different with Succession, Curb, all these great shows coming back. I actually am watching Impeachment as well uh, at the moment. Yeah, what do you think about that before we get into uh, into this one? I think, I, I think it's really well made, and I think you have to care about the subject matter. And if you don't, it's going to be a slog. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think... This is not the O.J. Simpson where it was like such a big breakout pop culture that everybody was talking about it and like the performance was so spot on. This one, not as good. I think the performances are well done and the method acting from, uh, I forget who the, uh, from Sarah Paul says Linda Tripp. In fact, she actually put 30 pounds of weight on to play that role accurately. It was impressive. But apart from some of the other ones, I think are were miscast a little bit. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to like judge it too harshly. You know what I mean? Like, it is what if it you're is. Watching, yeah, and, and the OJ one was so flashy. You had such flashy characters. This cast is not... I mean, we're six episodes in, and Edie Falco has had two lines this whole yeah. season. They they And I've been super excited to see her. So still a lot more to go, and I will finish it. I don't hate it. I actually kind of like it. So that's where I stand on impeachment. Yeah, so that's impeachment. And as we're doing here, we, have, we put the big general warning on the top of the show here, but... For anybody who's in the segments here, some of these these shows we're covering here, a little dark, a little violent, violent, fit the Halloween theme. So before we get into the spoilers, I'll give you something a little happier to get you in the spoiler mood. So if you have not watched all seven episodes of Midnight Mass yet, 
Here's your warning to get out. All right, you've been warned. Get the hell out if you have not watched Midnight Mass yet. And if you haven't, please do. Please, please do. I recommend it to everybody. And, you know, I am not a religious person. I know that might be controversial to say to some, but you don't need to be to enjoy a show like this. A show written this well, it is for everybody. The only thing I say is if you don't stomach violence too well, then maybe stay away. But if you can handle it, the highest of recommendations from Alan Austin. Yeah. So before we get into the the big specific points on this one, so give me give me the earlier pitch of the audience has not seen this yet. So the general concept here at Midnight Mass. General concept here is if you love stories about redemption, if you love a great heel, a great bad guy, if you will, and if you love superb acting and writing. If you're an, a theater kid or you're a young actor who's looking for monologues, I'm trying to cover the whole spectrum of people who would want to watch this. If you are somebody who you know quarrels with your religion, with how, how you feel your faith is represented in television and film, if you've ever like, it reminds me of early Martin Scorsese works where he was clearly like, you know, having a tussle with his religious, with, with his religion and his faith. This is to me, Mike Flanagan's like opus, like this is a well-rounded, emotional, hectic, violent, beautiful show. I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's my favorite show of the calendar year so far. That's high praise. You had a lot of good stuff come out this year. A lot of good stuff come out, but honestly, I was bought hook, line, and sinker from the moment this show started, from the moment you you set your eyes on the island the moment you set your eyes on the 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 accident that opens the show that's all I'll say for now i i was i was in i was in especially knowing that in order to fully embrace a mike flanagan project you got to see it through and i'm so glad i did yeah so to reset here basically the set tone here is that you basically the, whole, the series is basically set on an island a very religious island with a very heavily Catholicism belief, very believe in the church is shaken up by the arrival of two people on it. One is the return of Riley green, who is this like the, basically he left the Island to go start a business career, spent four years in prison after killing a, killing a girl in a drunk driving accident comes back as part of his penance. And then we have this mysterious pastor come into town, father Paul, who basically comes in and, revitalizes the town's religious I mean, basically it's religious revival here like we see some miracles he's also the crazy things happen like and that's what gets you sort of thrown in there and i think if you watch the trailer you got played beginning of the second here the moment hooks you in i think right away episode number two is when they're having mass and lisa in the wheelchair gets up and walks to go receive communion you're like oh my god what am i in for yes absolutely there are some wonderful storytelling devices this show uses when i say i was at the edge of my seat almost every scene 
I'm not even kidding. And I appreciate you saying Riley Green because as a Detroit Tigers fan, I'm very much excited for Riley Green's arrival in the majors. <laughs> but it is it is Riley Flynn. Riley Fair, and, Flynn. And Aaron Green oh. is a Kate Siegel character. But um uh it, it's yes, so you've got the you've got the guy who committed the heinous crime. He's clearly not a bad guy. He made a terrible, life-altering, and ultimately tragic mistake. He comes back to the island that he called home before he left. You know, he he left out. He he got out of there because it wasn't for him. Has to swallow his pride, come back home, be with his very religious parents, and like you said, it corresponds with a brand new priest in town who's seemingly committing miracles. And it's a very interesting, introspective look at faith, belief, what's real, what's not, and when it goes too far. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I mean, if you, you're here with us, you've seen all this, all the episodes, you know what's going on here. What was the point you started to figure out here? Oh, this is what's happening, and this is pretty crazy. Like, when was the moment for you that you figured it out? What kind of had an so, idea what was going? I was, here. here's Mike, this is going to sound crazy to you. I didn't once, and and it might sound stupid of me, I didn't think vampire until I was done with the show and listened to some feedback. I was so hooked that I did not just necessarily jump to this is vampires now. I literally thought it was just the means in which that demon executed his his wrath, if that makes any sense. So I'm so glad, and I, I feel very happy that... Flanagan decided not to use the V word, if you will, at all in the series. I think it would have taken a little bit of the gusto out. And I, as an audience member, was on, I guess I was just on a different train of thought, a different wavelength where I didn't link vampire. And stupid of me, of course, in retrospect, it's obviously they're vampires now, but I really just thought that like drinking blood and sucking the life out of a human was that demon's wrath yeah and when you mentioned like where i thought this series was going so the monsignor pruitt twist i called in the first episode i think they want you to know that because they don't want you to think that that's going to be the big reveal by episode three they've fully revealed all your suspicions which i'm so glad about there are more twists to come even with monsignor pruitt being who his daughter is and whatnot but when i fully got hooked was episode one when Hamish Linklater just starts laying into the character laying into Monsignor Pruitt and I was like this is going to be a roller coaster and by the time he has uh, you mentioned her name I forget her character's name walking out of her wheelchair Uh, I think Lisa Lisa when he has her walking out of his wheelchair out of her wheelchair I was just I had to start the next episode you know what I mean and there are some brilliant choices. Just the fact that it, you know, this is not outright saying religion is a cult. This show is saying that the power of persuasion, religion or not, in the wrong hands and not in a cared for manner is 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 dangerous. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's religion, if it's just like a group mentality, if it's handled inappropriately or for the wrong reasons, 
it's detrimental not only to one's personal health, but to a society as a whole. I think this show has so many great points that I think an a rash reaction would be to think that it's knocking religion when I think it's doing just the opposite. I think it's promoting religion in the correct way, if done correctly. Yeah, you had a lot of interesting points there. I start with the Monsignor Pruitt of it all, and we learned that Father Paul, when he comes to town, is basically says, I'm subbing in for Monsignor Pruitt. He's off, like, on the mainland getting treatment for cancer. and He's old. He's yeah. old, basically, blah, blah, blah. We find out, obviously, episode three, and they do a good job of the show foreshadowing things and pointing things out to you without you realizing at the time. And we find out that basically Father Paul is Monsignor Pruitt after he got basically resurrected by the vampire who kills who kills him like overseas and then he reincarnates as a younger person. And then he comes decides to bring his spread his brand of like miracles to the island, try and cr- create a survival down there. That's sort of like the Monsignor Pruitt angle at the beginning. I think that's definitely a fun way to start. It's a fun way to start, and it makes him really look like he's going to be like, you suspect him to be a bad guy, and you kind of think like, yeah, something's probably up here because, you know, he is Monsignor Pruitt. Father Paul is Monsignor Pruitt. He's doing all these great things. Like, it's not until you realize that he's addicted to Helping the people. blood yeah, and the yeah and the helping people like he i i i had a, i've had a tussle with myself deciding whether or not monsignor pruitt's a good person or not i think at the end of the day he is he just got swept up and out of control and he was buying into something he shouldn't have and i think it was a comment on even good people can be corrupted yeah, that makes some sense for sure. He's one, like, we get the hints on this in the second episode in terms of his whole overall plot line when he goes to meet Sarah's mother to do, to give her mass at home because she's homebound. And one of the mysteries I love throughout the show is that every episode, the character gets younger because she's getting the blood every episode. And when she ends up getting down to the age where she's played, she's played the whole time by Alex Esso, who plays a big role in Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Blind Manor. And we finally see her real age. We realize she calls him John at the beginning of the second episode where you realize, oh, she knows who he really is. And we find out that they were lovers at the end of the show and Sarah, the island doctor, is their child. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the first or second episode where the boys, the, the um, what are they called? The, 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 the altar boys. Altar boys, uh, they usually fill the, the blood, the wine. And he's like, I got it. Yeah. Like, you're right. It's these little cute, because he's putting his blood into that. Yeah. And his blood is that of the the vampire. They they have a word for it in the show. I forget what it is. The the sacrament, I think, or something like that. Yeah. And it's helping heal people. It's not fully turning them into vampires, but it's giving them a a, a sort of like it's it's, it's building a, of it. It's building a dependency in the blood. Yes, yes. So, and and there's another comment to make there. But yeah, so the blood the. Uh, he does have a heel turn. He does turn into the full-on bad guy around episode four fully. Yes. Episode three is where you go, okay, this isn't going to end well. Yes. <laughs> and episode four is where he, four through six, six is when he he's a full-fledged bad guy. And um, Bev Keen, the local... Uh, high horse, if you know, I don't know what to call her. She's elitist. She's better than everyone. 
uh, she becomes the final boss, if you will, yeah, to we'll, the ship. We'll call her the Church Karen. The Church Karen's a perfect way to yeah. put it. Yeah, yeah. I know, and, and what's so great about the Bev Keen character is I know people exactly like Bev Keen. Oh, yes. I know a few of them as well. And yeah, it, it's... It, ugh. Yeah, we'll get to Bev Keen in a minute. And I also thought another one they threaded nicely through here was the appearance of the vampire. And we get, like, and people don't realize this, you go back to episode one if you watch the series, and Riley sees the figure on the beach. It actually is the vampire wearing Pruitt's clothes, and you don't realize it at the time. You go back and check again, you're like, oh, that's a nice hint. They don't give you the full profile, but you see from the height and, like, the features that is the vampire there. And, and then, I I have not done a second rewatch, but I do plan on it. Yeah, that's something you notice when, the, when you go back to the first episode. You see that there's actually the vampire on the beach that Riley's seen during the hurricane. And it's the vampire who, you know, destroys all the cats. And yeah. and he kills that one boy who's like the drug dealer to yeah. the island. It, it, it's, uh, it's, oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. And the vampire, we don't realize the full extent of it until you see episode four, where basically. Riley is basically the one guy who sees his comments like, wait, this is fishy. This is not the miracle. Something is wrong here. And then he's going to AA meetings with uh, Father Paul. He happens to walk in when the vampire is there giving him blood, and then he gets killed and resurrected. And you're, and you're like, oh, my God. That's, a, that's another great hook at the end of episode four is when you think Riley's dead. And you're like, they just killed the main character in the fourth episode of the show. And then you find out what happens to him. Definitely a fantastic moment. Riley's... Look, the Flanagan crew never really gets any Emmy love, but if I were Mike Flanagan, I would submit Zach Guilford's episode five for Emmy consideration. Yes. Probably wouldn't, it would probably fall on deaf ears because, you know, these award shows never, ever, ever like horror. No. But um, it's quite a performance. The Riley character is so good. He is a, a true flawed hero. Yes. I don't want to call him an anti-hero. He's just a flawed hero. Yeah, he is a flawed hero. And we find out, basically, we finally get the explanation of what's going on in episode five, where they obviously figure out that he becomes a vampire because he can't go out during the day because his skin burns. He hides in, like, the rec center all day. And then at night, he goes and finds Aaron, who played by Mike Flanagan's real-life wife, Kate Seagull. has been everything he does, pretty much. So he put rings around the boat. Tells her the whole story about what's going on with Father Paul and all the thing with the vampire and all that. And then makes her way out there till sunrise where he lets himself get immolated to prove that the story is true. And that ending to episode five. Again, the endings on the show are fantastic. Like, And they play her screaming through the credits. That's just yes. like really haunting. Haunting. And again, I feel like an idiot for not realizing it was all vampires. But I was literally just buying into it like as a separate story. And uh my goodness, yeah, that episode five, episode, okay, so I would say from the last 10 minutes of three through the end of six are just like nonstop roller coaster ride, yeah. and the performance of Amish Linklater, of everybody in this show is just top notch, everybody's cast perfectly, and the Flanagan crew knows how to do Mike Flanagan. That they do, and Bev Keen plays a big role in these episodes too, because we get a hint that she's like not as like puritanical good as she claims to be. Like we get the hint that she murders the the town drunk's dog in episode two when she grabs the rat poison and puts it around. Like she's oh, it's an accident when you actually kind of you kind of figure out oh she killed the dog on purpose, and then 
she plays a big role in help covering up once she realizes that Father Paul is a vampire. She's like, no, we can't let them know about this. They need your help. They need to become they need to become resurrected and, and become enlightened and spread the word of God. And like her actions basically doom the entire town the rest of the way. Absolutely. She's power hungry. She's you know, she is holier than thou in yes. more ways than one in this in this series. And you see the power truly get to her when when she has been turned vampire and she's out there saying this person deserves to be, this person does not, she has a God complex. Yeah. And it ultimately is her downfall. And, you know, it, it's just like, I, I have so many emotions thinking about this show, which is why I love it so much. But the one thing about the Bev Keen character is she's hateful. Yes. And that's a certain hypocrisy with a lot of, you know, we're not going to dig too much into the weeds of, you know, religion and whatnot, but I've always, in my experience, some of the most, I put in air quotes, religious people I know are, are the harshest and most judgmental. And that fits in line with Bev Keen's demeanor. You know, of course, you know, there's a character who is a Muslim yeah, the in sheriff. the show, the sheriff, the sheriff, and she gives it to him from all angles. And when she finally feels like she has all the power and people backing her, that's when she starts getting real nasty in public and saying visceral, like vi violent, gross things to this man. Her ego has inflated to the point of no return. And she thinks she's more powerful than Monsignor Pruitt, who she feels has lost the way. So she has bought into this demon because there is a line they use so perfectly in the show about how, you know, I don't know Bible verses, but when you first see a, an angel, you're full of fear. So she takes that to heart and buys into it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, for sure. And we, obviously, she's played a big part in the moment of the show. Like, the moment that everyone talks about. Episode 6, midnight, the actual Midnight Mass, the Easter Vigil, we see the massacre in the church where the the, the vampire shows up. We see uh, Sarah, like Sarah and her mother try to stop this. The vampire like flies through the church, like she rips Mildred out. And all of a sudden, we see them drinking the the poison blood, dying, resurrecting as vampires, attacking everyone who didn't drink the blood. It's so visceral, so violent, and like it's a solid like 15, 20 minute ending. You're just like, oh my god, it is. It's tough to watch, but you can't look away. You know, it's, it's, there's so many, the townspeople dynamic is so good in this show as well. You know, you have the mayor who his daughter is Lisa. And once he sees her walk, he is, he's all in, he just, he's all in him and his wife. And at first you think his wife might be skeptical, but I actually think the scene where you see her crying is that of joy. You know, it's not that of scared or fearful. Uh, and and you, you you further think that once you see her all in. The guy, there's the, um like, the town handyman. I'm so bad with character names. I apologize. Oh, I think it's Sturge. Sturge, who's all in. And he has the power to affect the, the, the cell tower and the boats off the island. Setting this thing on an island was a brilliant choice. Yes. And, uh, you know, I saw... um some reviewers talking about how this is Flanagan trying to make a comment on coronavirus response. And 
I think they're just looking for that. I, I've got the feeling, and I think it's pretty proven that Midnight Mass has been in the works way before the pandemic was ever a thing. The fact that he's referenced it in other films of his as far back as like 2014. So like, I, I think all the messaging you're looking for is time is timeless. Like the real, what he wants you to know stands the test of time. And you you can relate it to you want of herd mentality in regards to coronavirus coronavirus, but it doesn't have to be. You know what I mean? I don't think he's making a particular statement about any one single issue. Yeah, and I do think also we have that epic scene. We have the conversation with Bev at the end where Sarah shoots her dead, and then she ends up resurrecting in the next episode, and we see have, see her sending out the the vampire townspeople to try and infect everyone else and basically turn the rec center into like a haven for them so they could stay inside during the day. And then at night, take the boats, go spread the, vi- the vampire virus to the re- to the mainland and spread the word of God in their words and see the mission basically as that's to be, we have to stop these people and let prevent them from destroying everything. Father Paul flips back, says, this is wrong. I should not have done it. You see, he gets personally affected by what happened in the church. Like he, he sits there in the moment, that stuff talking about, he's like, whoa, I went too far. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, it's tough. And that's where I think like the whole idea of forgiveness, I think as an audience, we're supposed to forgive father Paul yes, or Monsignor Pruitt, if you will. And it's definitely something I've tussled with because I've heard people say he's a good guy. As we spoke about before, I, 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 I think he meant well, but he just was, he did too much bad. He yeah. did too much bad because he felt the rejuvenation from the vampire. He was, I think it depends if, if he really thinks that demon was an angel. Yeah. Because in his mind, if that demon was an angel, the same way Bev Keen thinks, I think he's more forgivable, but if he knows something is bad and he's going forward with his mission, then he's a full, full bad guy. I think, like I said before, from the be- the the beginning of four until maybe the middle of three until six, he's gone too far. Yeah, I think what happens with him, I think is interesting is he obviously he counters the vampire pre series. He, he gets mm-hmm. he comes wakes up basically as a young man again and says, Oh, this is amazing. I don't know if I believe it though. Then when Lisa comes out of the wheelchair is like, This is great. I'm addicted to like becoming a god figure and having miracles caused and trying to basically help as many people as he can. And then once he sees the cost of what he's done, that's when he snaps back into the old, like, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what the word of God wants here. So that's when he sort of flips back to like actual Monsignor Pruitt. Right. And I think one of the other lessons of the series, I think if Monsignor Pruitt gauged his expectations and was a little bit more grounded, he would have seen the forest for the trees, if you will. Yes. But he got swept up in the moment because of the miracle that was his rejuvenation. Yeah. His rejuvenation, then Lisa getting in the, out, able to walk again out of the wheelchair, and then he's saying, "I can spread the word of God through the miracles," and then he's tr- ties it to another mission. Then that's what happens. Yeah, and it's a uh, my God, is it captivating? Seven episodes never went so quickly, and I've heard some online criticism of it being a little bit of a drag. I disagree entirely. Every monologue, every scene extended, I was in on. Yeah, it's a slow boil. But I think you need the slow boil on this because in order to build the suspense and build that horror, you can't dump everything out in episode three. You need to get to the point where you're five episodes in before you see somebody burn up like, and immolate themselves in the daylight. You can't do that in episode two. 
No. And I had a friend tell me that he would have watched this if it was just a show about Monsignor Pruitt and Riley in the rec center talking about his past and trying to get over his pain and, and, and redeem himself. Yeah. That's how good the scenes that have nothing to do with the horror are. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, because... Thomas Linklater also acts the hell out of Father Paul. Like he's like every time he's on the screen, you're like glued to him to see what he's up to. Of course, yes, Hamish Linklater, renowned theater actor, his mother, a huge acting coach, the the founder of the Linklater technique. He's 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 the real deal, and every nuance he adds to his character. Another one I think should be nominated for an Emmy. Probably won't because of the anti horror bias, but. Yes. Every performance in this show was perfect. I kid you not. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. Everybody was on point. Yeah. Let's get to the ending of the of the of the show. Obviously, because we have the mission. Like all the adults in the mission die at this point. Things like Sarah, her mother, uh, the sheriff, and a couple of others. I think I think uh, Riley's mother is involved in this, and they all die. I think. Riley's younger brother and Lisa escape on a on a canoe. The they end up burning all the houses down. They burn the wreck center. They burn the church. So when the sun rises, everyone on the island dies because the sheriff gets shot. Everybody else gets, gets who got bit by the vampire immolates, and that's it. That's how we end the show. And we find out that as Aaron is dying, she basically knifes the vampire's wings and. He tries to escape, and he we find we get a line dialogue saying, "Hey, he's not going to make it." He we find out basically he just burns up in the daylight. I would have liked to see it. Um, I would have liked to see it just as a fan of the yeah. show. Uh, yeah, and I think it's very interesting that the two characters who don't run their lives with Catholicism, with religion, Sarah and the sheriff, um, are the ones who are spared the the burning death. Yes, they both get shot. Or uh, does Sarah get shot? She as does. Well? She does. She does get shot. I think Bev, Bev Keen shoots her back. I think Bev Keen shoots her back when she's talking to Monsignor Pruitt about him being her father. Yes, and that's another guy. And and it's funny the parallels between Monsignor Pruitt and Riley, two people who have done something horribly irreversible. You know, on if you're grading on a scale, yeah, in terms of importance looking for redemption and ultimately burning up. But Sarah and the sheriff, they get deaths that are not as, they do not have to be cleansed by the daylight, so to speak. Um, and, and there are characters who were turned vampire that didn't want to be. You mentioned, is her name Mildred, the mother? Yes. And uh, um, Riley's parents, yeah. Aaron. These are all characters who were turned. I think Aaron might die just from bleeding out in that moment. I think she was turning, but, and then the sun the sun wakes up. The sun okay, so she does yeah. turn into a vampire. Okay, it's a uh, yeah. It's a very. I don't. I don't know the word. To, I, I want to say cleansing, but I hate that term. But it's a it's a brand new day once the sun rises. It's, a, it's ending like a, the evil night. It's a purge. It's a purge, yeah. yeah. And once you know, once the sun comes up, and I'm not sure if the link to the rejuvenation is through Monsignor Pruitt or through the vampire demon. Lisa can't feel her legs after a certain point, reverting back to pre miracle. Yeah, I think the impl implication there was that now, like the blood is leaving her, and she's not exposed to it anymore. And now the, the healing properties of the blood are gone, and now she is going back to being a paraplegic. Which she's like, okay, I'm fine with it. Like 
this is not what it's supposed to be. No, and you saw that uh, Riley's younger brother is like, he's comforted by the fact, not by the pain she's about to feel, but the fact that he loved her theoretically either way, and now we're going to be together. Yeah. Really nice stuff. Just, I can't speak highly enough. I, I know you're going to ask me officially, but my grade is an A+. plus. Yeah, it, this gets, yeah, I don't give A pluses out like candy. This is an A plus. Like this is, per, this is like perfection for seven episodes. It's, it's the perfect length. It's not too long. It's not too short. They pace everything out well. Like every scene in there has a purpose. There's not like a moment here. Where you're like, why is this in the show? Like, why are we going here? It's like everything ties together. There's, there's stuff to learn in each scene. And you mentioned the massacre and that's not even the scene that made me felt the most uncomfortable. Yeah. It's the first scene where Monsignor Pruitt bloodlusts. Yeah. That one got me. When he kills the town when he kills the town drunk. When he kills Joe Colley yeah. and it just starts like sipping the blood out of his head. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, so gross. And that one that one gutted me to my core. Yeah, that absolutely did. And I think I'm with you A plus and I think it's obviously he's had a reputation because he's the guy behind haunting a hill house, haunting a blind man. This surpasses both of those surpasses both. I mean, the only film of his I haven't seen is hush. Everything else of his I've seen and haunting of hill house season. And this season are both two of my top 10 television show seasons of all time. Yeah. And what's great is that they don't exist outside of those seasons. So it's just like a wonderful, wonderful cover-to-cover -cover story that ends and begins in one season, a miniseries. I mean, I rank it one Midnight Mass, two, not too far away, two Haunting of Hill House. And I liked Bly Manor, but that is third. Yeah, Bly Manor is a different thing. I talked about this last year on the Halloween podcast, Sam DeRose. Like, Bly Manor is sort of like a tragic love story more than like an, a true horror piece. There aren't as many like jump scares and that's as big a psychological horror as this one has. It's like Hill House is obviously the traditional classic horror show. That's a different kind of thing. I like it for what it is, but it's not as good as the other two. Yeah. And Bly Manor is still horror. It's not as blatant. It's not as scary. It's not meant to be, but it does do one thing that always freaks me out and that's kid horror. Yes. So it did get me here and there. The lady in the lake was scary. Like yes. she was a scary character. And I, you know, just to touch on his films real quick, Gerald's game is very intense and yeah. very well crafted. And Henry Thomas, you know, we always talk about like a gang of people who work together all the time. You have the Seth Rogen, Judd Apatow, you have the Scorsese, DiCaprio, De Niro. You there's reasons. Okay. You get in a groove with people you want to work with when there's a lot of money and a lot of time and everything on the line. You want to go with the people you have on your roster. Henry Thomas, Carla Gugino, uh, you know, Kate Siegel, now Zach Guilford, he's going to be in the Midnight Club. Just like he's got his roster. The actress who plays Bev Keen, he's used yeah. before. It's just on fire. And and Dr. Sleep is a wonderful movie and a great sequel to The Shining. Yeah, absolutely. And we mentioned some of his upcoming prize. I think it's nice. Netflix seems to realize, hey, like, these Mike Flanagan things are great for us. So we're going to do some, do one every year, it feels like, because now we had two years around next year. You said the Midnight Club is coming, and then they also greenlit another project. Where we're basically going to do, I believe it's called the Usher of, uh, I forget the exact name here, but yeah, the, it's called the Fall, the Fall of the House of Usher, eight-episode limited series based on the short story of the same name, other works of, by Edgar Allan Poe, which is 
one of the sand throughout last year as well is that I would love to see him do Poe. We're going to get an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation from him. So it's, I'm she excited for both these. Soothsayer. Uh, <laughs> what I like is that I don't know this one by Poe. I'm sure it's a very famous, well-known. I just don't happen to know it. So I'm not going to look into it. I am going to be surprised and see what I see. You know, my favorite Edgar Allan Poe is The Cask of Amontillado, yeah. which is a wonderful short story and truly haunting poe is the master for a reason and, you know someone might say alan you don't know this one blah 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 look i don't know everything it is what it is midnight club i'm kind of getting the vibe that it might be a series of short stories like it might be a little bit of an anthology but i'm not sure i i think it might be an anthology with an overarching story based on what i read from the description either way i'm stoked yeah, I'm excited for both of these. I cannot wait for them to come out. If I were to get this one first, I would guess the other one's probably 23 would be my guess for uh, the, the, the Poe one. one. Yeah. yeah. Because, I've, I mean, this is not like the circle where they, dro- they dro- double pump two a year on Netflix now. I think they're going to space these out. No, and I really hope it never comes to the point where a Mike Flanagan character is saying circle message. <laughs> yeah, circle message or, send, or sending eggplant emojis. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But yeah, thank you for having me on to talk about this series because it really left an impact in me on me. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I am Mike Flanagan has out of nowhere become one of my favorite directors, if not current top five. Yeah, for sure. And people are on social media. How can they do that? Instagram, Alan Austin sports, A L L E N. And Twitter is Alan underscore Austin underscore. Yeah. And I see, I'm sure you got some fun stuff coming up on the yeah. Alan Austin show as well. Not the Alan Austin show. I mean the uh, chart shoppers. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. I have uh, two shows going currently. One is chart choppers on the chop sports network. Check out my social media to find details. And the other is American scene. My friend Ben and I. <coughs> I'm sorry, Mike. You sure you didn't take the rat poison before you came on here? <coughs> uh, me and Joe Colley's yeah. dog, yeah. Uh, the other is American Scene. My friend Ben and I discuss films with American in the title, talk about their cultural relevance and impact. Recently, we've done American Graffiti, American Buffalo, and we've got an American Werewolf in London coming up for Halloween. Oh, very nice. And this is the second part of the great Halloween Pop culture podcast. We get to the Netflix show that everyone's talking about next. We're gonna talk about Squid Games. You started the Squid Games. I started it. It was rough. It was way more. I compare it to Saving Private Ryan, just uh, in terms of its realness, violence. Whereas like Midnight Mass, Game of Thrones, Marvel, Star Trek, Star Wars, all that violence I think is masked in this fairy tale kind of yeah, you know, excuse. Whereas Squid Game and Saving Private Ryan and you know, some other really gross horror movies, gross, not necessarily means bad, but it hits me in a different way and it's very unsettling. That's where Squid Game after the first episode left me. Yeah, we'll get to the Squid Games next. Sandra is coming on. We're going to talk some Squid Games right after this.
right, we are back here on the Just and the Suffering podcast, Halloween Pop Culture Party 2, doing the next part of this year. We've already done some doing. We did Midnight Mass. Now we're getting into the number one show on Netflix of all time. Squid Game is here, and we have these pop culture moments. We need to have our pop culture correspondent come on. Sandra Rose is here. Sam, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I don't know. I have to say, this one came out completely left field for me because the original aim of this part of the podcast is going to be Legend of the Hidden Temple. We'll do that a little bit, but I think this is a better call to spend most of the focus on this. Yeah, I mean, it was way more entertaining, just much better of a production than Legends, but... We'll get the, <laughs> we'll get the Legends. We'll dunk on Legends a little bit later, but... For, Definitely. <laughs> for, for now, I want to ask you, like, when did you first hear about this thing called Squid Game? Like, when did you first get in your mind? Um, I don't know, probably like a couple of days after it came out on Netflix, everyone's like, oh, have you seen Squid Games? Have you like watched it? Have you like, have you heard the premise? Like blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch this. This is another Tiger King thing. Like I can wait, I can wait. And I don't know. I just waited till you were like, hey, want to do Squid Games? I'm like, awesome. Gives me a reason to watch it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, because I remember this is probably the most hype thing coming out on Netflix since Tiger King. And Tiger King, I know the second one's coming out soon. It's coming out, I think, next month. They have a second one, which that's going to be an epic disaster. I cannot wait to see how badly that's done. But this, oh my God. this one actually did love to the hype. This one's very good. No, this was actually, this was excellent storytelling. This was one of my favorite, uh, had my fa- one of my favorite episodes ever of television in it. Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. We'll get to that in a minute. But if you have not watched Squid Game yet, we're going to spoil the hell out of this show. So before you get in there, I know this show is very dark and depressing. And like a lot of this material is on this podcast this week. We have changed the spoiler song for this week. The main one's on top of the podcast. But for people in this segment, you've not watched Squid Game yet. Here's your warning to get the hell out of here and go watch the show. All right, you've been warned. If you have not finished Squid Game yet, get out, go watch the pod, go watch the show, come back. Otherwise, you're going to be spoiled from, from here on out. I really enjoyed the spoiler yeah. music. Yeah, I want, I figure we need something positive because there's a lot of negativity in a lot of these products that we've been doing on this podcast this week. It is. It's more Halloween-y, so, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. okay to be a little, like, spooky, scary, sad. Yeah, well, I mean, Dune's intense. Dune, we know what Dune is. Midnight Mass, we just talked about it with Alan a few minutes ago, and that's pretty, that was really, really good, but really, really dark. This one just is intense. It's dark. It's a very sad commentary on humanity, and there was a little bit of hope in the end, but I thought it was just overall, like, very, very well done. Yeah, I agreed. The whole humanity take is so spot on. It's just like how the world is, and it's like so sad. <laughs> okay, let's start off with the most important thing here for this one. Did you watch the dubbed American version? Because it's a South Korean proctor. Did you watch the original South Korean with subtitles? I watched the dub because that is what I clicked on, and it's the dub, and I know I'm probably going to get some hate for it. I normally like to watch things with subtitles, but I let it ride. I watched Squid Games while I was cooking, while I was cleaning. So it was uh, actually kind of helpful this time around. So get off my case. (laughs) I tried the dub. The dub was awful. I know. I wasn't a fan, but when I rewatch it, because I always watch things twice, three times, maybe I will watch it with subtitles because that's 
how I normally watch things, but considering the circumstances, it had to be done. Yeah, so I start, I tried dub. The dub was awful. I switched the subtitles, and it's an infinitely better experience because the dub actors have such, like, a completely tone differential approach to this than the actual actors in the show. I know Alan Austin, who we just heard from, said, I talked to him, he said he did the dub because he wanted to watch the, the acting from the faces, and it's hard to be trying to read the subtitles. But for me, I'm like, you get so much more out of it watching when the subtitles, watching them, like, actually hear the actor's voice as opposed to some random American singing a voiceover booth doing it. Oh, I I agree wholeheartedly. I, you know, it's just didn't, it wasn't in the cards for me this time yep. around. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go any further here, let's get the general premise here of the show. So give me like the elevator pitch on what Squid Game is. Squid Game, it's a bunch of people who are in debt, who need money, and they are going to play a game or several games in order to pay off their debt tenfold and win all this money if they are the winner. Um, that's basically, you know, my elevator pitch of the show. Yeah, a couple things I'll add to that pitch here. The games are like childhood games. So we're talking like red light, green light. We're talking marbles. We're talking like faking shapes out in honeycombs. But the catch here is if you lose, you die. Like, and a lot of blood was shed over the course of this show. Yeah, I didn't realize how gory it was. Like, I knew that people would die. Just like red, red, red light, green light, the whole like fear and like yeah. the blood and the shooting. I'm like, yeah, like this is legit. Like, this is intense. Like, yeah, oof. yeah, it is intense. And we follow on the main character, Jihan, who we find out like is a guy who's in debt. He has a daughter with his ex wife and he's trying to make some money. He goes in, he gets recruited to this game. And then we see the beginning, you see, oh my God, like everyone's dying. And then I think it's fascinating to see like, the moment in the second episode where they had the vote, because according to the contracts of the sh- of the game, it's like if the majority of players agreed and the games, the games are over. It ends up having a vote of, I think by one vote, it goes, they all get kicked out. And then they all sit there and they're like, man, our lives suck. And we end up going back. So I thought it was fascinating to see like them take that direction. I saw when the vote came up, it's like, oh no, they're definitely not going to send them home. And then, that was yeah. a great choice to send them home as they realize, oh, wait, we do need to do this. Yeah, it's very interesting. This game is all about, like, rules and, like, you know, you have your respect. There's no, you know, like, everything. It's just, you know how it is. You don't want to disrespect anybody. It's very interesting because it's it's not American culture. It's definitely, it has to be, like, you know, it's, the Asian, like, yeah, it's Korean. you know, especially in South Korea, like, respect and everything. But, like, the way that all the rules were, like, animity and all that stuff was held at such high regard to protect yourself yeah. you know yeah. it's just like so i was like it was a different concept for me that that's what stuck stuck out a lot for me while i was watching yeah the whole idea is all, all the players are equal everyone has a fair opportunity mm-hmm. to follow the rule like you just follow the rules and you do what you're supposed to you move on and at the end we see then obviously the people behind the scenes tweaking the rules a little bit to try and create more interesting outcomes there but i also point out that the Character that the sort of main cleaner people wearing the pink jumpsuits with the with the black mask with the shapes on them, like that is the number one Halloween costume this year. Everybody's be doing that. It's gonna annoy the hell out of me. Oh my god, yes. But like, have you read all the theories about them and everything? Yeah, I know we've only seen two of them, uh, like actually on mass. One was uh, one was one of our our main characters, the cop who is going undercover there. So, so uh, there's been a theory. Well, there's like two theories. The first is 
when you pick the card, either blue or um, red, like if you pick the red, you become a worker. That's been one of them. Or another theory is that these guys were the workers, uh, the workers, I apologize. The workers were past like winners, possibly. There's been so much circulation about who these people are because they're all anonymous. They all have numbers. It's like, and then they get shot if they get find out who they are. So it's just like a very, it's just so interesting. Like everybody's trying to find out like, who are these people? Like, how did they get here and everything? Yeah. I also want to think it's fascinating watching how these games play out and like the little hints of information they're giving the players as they went in terms of like trying to set things up. I mean, like if you somehow found yourself in like a squid game scenario where you were in there, like how does he be trying to interpret these rules? Trying to figure out like, what do I doing here? What's the point of this game? Like I always like the choice they gave these players are fascinating also. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, like let's think just, I think about, um, like tug of war and everything like i when i was little like tug of war was like my favorite game yeah so like that whole thing where you like pull and if you don't get it it's just like you know you fall to your death and i'm just like ah that gave me such bad anxiety but i don't know i don't even know how i would handle myself i just hope that you know i just heard somebody saying because there's so many smart people out there that all the games the first episode are on the wall yeah i caught that late i noticed that like i'm not the eighth episode i noticed that Oh my God, that's so good. I pff, I yeah. didn't even recognize that yeah. at all. Yeah. I was just, I read that and I was like, oh my God, I went back and saw it. So I just hope that I would find out from a smart person who is a number before me, after me, whatever. Um, and that's how I would, if that would help me, hopefully, you know, putting all my eggs in the basket there. Yeah, let's go through, let's go through these games one at a time. You get the red light, green light, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. You know how to play that game. Yeah, I think I would do okay in that one, let's yeah. just say. The next one's the honeycomb, where you have to carve the shape out of a honeycomb. And the instructions they give them before the game are pick a shape. And I think it's funny. That time we see that we had the team of four form of Ji-Hung, Sang-Woo, Ali, and the old man. And they and the strategy they came up with is, let's all pick a different shape. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. Would you have felt the way it seems like me, you, let's say, Alan, and John Stanko, we are all in there. Would you want us all to split up, or do you want us all to go, go with the same thing? Hell no. Same thing. Power in numbers. Yeah. You kidding me? Also, who would pick an umbrella? Yeah. Um, yeah. Saying. I was like, why would we have all these, you know, straightforward shapes and then umbrella? Yeah. I feel like that's the other thing that's gone viral is the whole honeycomb challenge. I feel like that's a TikTok meme right now. Oh my God. There's so much, like so many people are making the cookie and everything yeah. or whatever it is, like the snack. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The honeycombs. And I mean, Poor Ji Hung, who picks the umbrella for some stupid reason. Like, once I see that, I'm like, oh, he did. <laughs> I know. I yeah. love him so much. Yeah. He's so funny. Like, he's, like that actor does such a good job with yeah. that character. Yeah, and he comes with a brilliant hack to lick the back of the honeycomb to, like, soften the honey and then get and get gets it out right before the clock ends. And that was such a brutal game because, like, if you crack the shape at all, you died. Oh, my God. And the ending of that episode, too, where yeah. the player, like, gets the worker – hostage and he yeah. pulls off his hood and he's this young kid yeah. and that was such a powerful scene yeah there were some subplots also here made like some like they just introduced things and just either got rid of them quickly or whatever like the ones that annoyed me the most like the one where they had the doctor was the plant among the players and he's there harvesting or like oh it's a big orbit harvesting operation that's what makes sense now and then nope they all he, he gets killed then the four uh, workers are with him all get killed I'm like why we waste our time with that plot? Yeah, that's very true. I was maybe it's just to fill time. 
maybe that's like a thing in like, yeah, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you, but I agree. I just think it was one of those plots where I wasn't a huge fan of it either. Yeah. Before we get back to the games, what do you think of the cop who went undercover, Jung Ho? I feel like for what he did, I don't think he was very effective as an undercover agent. I feel like he was getting close to getting caught like at least five times. Yeah, I mean, pardon me. I mean, I don't want to go too far into what we'll be discussing, but I I believe that he was a little unhinged because yeah. I feel like he knew his brother was there. He was looking for his brother. You know, the yeah. whole, that's probably the whole reason he was there because when Jiang went there and he was like, oh, you know, there's this game and people bet and we're on this island, we're all getting killed, blah, blah, blah. And nobody believes him except for that cop. And he follows him. It's because he's trying to find his brother. And I, I'm hoping that, the whole journey to find his brother kind of like clouded his judgment whilst yeah. being a cop and yeah. investigating. Yeah. I would, I would put, we'll put a pin in him for a minute. I want to get to the next one, which is the tug of war you mentioned before. And I think the instruction they get for that game is basically you're playing in teams. So form a team of 10. And when you get the, you hear team of 10, like how are you playing that? If you're in there, are you just grabbing the 10 strongest people? Are you grabbing a mix of people? What are you trying to do? You definitely want to mix um, yeah. as somebody who's played tug of war before you definitely want to mix of people. Cause you know, even tiny, tiny humans can have some strength as well. So I'm saying a good mix. Cause if you have all strong people, you have too big of people, you're going to trip over their feet. If one falls, they kind of all fall. They bring them all down. If you have a tiny person that falls, you're not really like getting pulled too yeah. far forward. Yeah. I think it's camp counselor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have, like, a very different approach team. We saw, like, the, basically, I call the cartoon villain of this thing, the guy, the, the gangster with the, the spider tattoo, like, the like snake tattoo on his face, one-on-one. I forget what his actual name was. Like, he gets a bunch of strong guys, and they cruise through this thing. And then we see Chi Hung's team. They have the old man. They have a couple of women on the team. They have a couple of weaker guys. And then Song Wu, to his credit, says, hey, we're going to use, like, smarts to outwit this, to outwit these guys. And it worked, and they survived. Yeah, which was crazy too, because like the way that they flung themselves yeah. was like heart stopping. Yeah, that was that was one of the cliffhangers of the episode when they when they saw them about to make the jump, make the run. Yeah, I was like, thank God they didn't. They just released them all at the yeah. same time. Yeah. I'd be pissed if I had to wait a week for that. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what that show would have been like if it was a weekly show. Mm-hmm, yeah. Me too. I don't think it would be as popular, to be honest. No, I think it works better in the binge. Mm-hmm, I agree. Yeah, so that game happens. They survive that one. Then I get to, I think, the episode you and I both agree is the best episode of the show by far is the Marbles. The Marble episode. Yeah. The Marble episode is so intense because it's an hour. I think it's the longest episode of the show. It's an hour and a minute. And the idea is basically, hey, like, you got the instruction they give you going in is you have to play this game in pairs. So naturally this is a great misdirect like a psychic like a psycho like psychological play on the part of the squid game creators where you just play it in teams like oh i'll pick my best friend and we're gonna work together and get through this and you're like nope you have to mm-hmm. one of you has to win the other one has to die so that's like you spend the hour seeing how these pairs or approach the situation yeah I, and it kind of like brings out the worst in a more like a pressured pressurized situation yeah because we see there's three pairs you follow through the episode like Two of the women, like uh, the one who's the pickpocket of North Korea and another woman who was trying to be friends with her in there, they they basically agree, hey, we're not we're going to do one thing at the end and that's going to be it. And they spend the whole half hour, to- whole hour talking about their lives and whatnot. We have yeah. Ji Hung and the old man and 
he basically, the old man feigns, like, basically forgets what's going on, lets Ji-Hung cheat him. We get fine. I'll get back, put a pin in that one, but as you can see how low Ji Hung is going to go survive. And then we have the Song Wu Ali thing, the last two teammates in. Song Wu does Ali so, so dirty. Uh, poor Ali, yeah. man. He was the best, one of the best characters. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He was too, too good for that world. Yeah. I mean, also, like, I don't know if you've read a lot of stuff and possible theories on Ali, but yeah. he's a very strong individual. Yeah. So they're saying like, you know, that's why Song Yu, um Song Yu picked him and everything. And yeah. he just got, you know, he was a good heart. Yeah, it, yeah, he was. And basically what happens to him, we can go through this, is like basically so Ali's like very close to winning and knocking uh Song Wu out. And then Song Wu says, Hey, we can work together here. Let's let's work as a team, and then we'll have we'll, our pair against another pair. We'll find pairs that are alive. Find a weak one to win. So he sends, he pulls a sleight of hand and switches, puts all of the marbles into his bag, gives Ali a bag of pebbles, and then at the end, you, that's the point where you start to realize that Sangwu is a sneaky mf'er. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like you see that he's gonna get brought to jail and stuff for his embezzlement and everything. Yeah. So you kind of like see that he's a desperate man. Yeah. But still, he's awful. Yeah, I I don't know if you were if you were a big Survivor fan or not. If you've watched the show ever, I've watched it like when I was younger, like yeah. more of the earlier seasons. Yeah, yeah. Song Wu would be a hell of a Survivor player because Song Wu is willing to do whatever it takes to make something happen. He's smooth talker. He convinces you. He's on your side. He screws you over. Like Song Wu <laughs> would pick the wrong game to play. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh... I'm still like that whole episode was just so well written. Yeah. The whole thing with Sob Sob. Uh, sub sub walk or whatever i'm so bad with names yeah um she uh, the pickpocketer i think yeah. she was what 62 67 i think seven yeah she was 67 like that whole thing like her family and you know they they give insights on you know how the country like their country is and yeah. stuff which is like i thought that was really well written and everything yeah. and oh i'm just that was such a rough one. And yeah. it was like such a pretty set too. Like yeah. I know it was like a murder set, but it was still really like beautiful. I, I like the episode because it really lets you like marinate in the characters for a while too. It's like, because opposed to like the tug of war is such an intense experience of like them trying to do the task. Like here's like a little approaching how each character tries to solve the problem and, and like knowing that they have to like screw someone over they're really close to in there. So I think that's also fascinating. Yeah, and a lot of them like pick the same game. You know, yeah. it's just like the the guessing if it's like yeah. even odds. Like yeah. it's interesting that they most of them all pick that game. Yeah, I didn't know there was more than one way to play marbles. I was thinking of like the traditional way you just put them on the ground, you're shooting in the marbles, and whoever bounces out wins. I would be like, I don't even know how to play marbles. Yeah. Boom, you're dead. Like you know, what I, like yeah. oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and I will give one on one credit for basically conning his way out of his own certain death because he was getting owned by his partner there, and then he comes to this ridiculous game and the shot of his marble bouncing in at the last second. I thought so cartoonish, so ridiculous. It just that was the only one I actually laughed out loud. I'm like, of course it's gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, I, he's he's just brought along for you to hate him the entire time. Yeah, he's the look at me, I'm the obvious villain of the show. Like, he's just such an irredeemably bad character that, like, you're just, like, you really grim to die. That, yeah, that, and you find out that he's not the actual, like, he's not the biggest villain in the group either. No, he's not. And we get to that in the fifth game. The fifth game is the game where it's basically 
you walk across like 18 panels of glass you have to hop across the end. One side is solid glass. The other is tempered glass that will collapse as soon as you're on it. So I did these, the lead after that was interesting where they basically say, pick a number between one and 16. We're not telling you what it is, but you have to pick a number. That's the order of play. So mm-hmm. I think, first of all, the people, I thought it was interesting that you had the front man saying like, oh, the, most people pick the middle because they're not sure to commit on what the direction is. So if you were playing, would you want to be first or would you want to be last or like somewhere towards the back? Last. Yeah. I pick, I'll always pick the bigger. I mean, my favorite number is five. So yeah. I'd probably gravitate towards five to be yeah. honest. Yeah. But if that was taken, I'd go to the back like 17. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just yeah. like all those, like, I know that what they went up to number 16, yeah. but like, you know what I mean? I'd go towards the back. Yeah. Cause I, I don't like to be first or anything. I never raise my hand first to be like, you're like, oh, do we have any volunteers? I'm like, nope. Like, yeah. that's even in real life. Like, yeah. I want to give G Hung the merit there for saying Spell Wall, considering number one. Because, I mean, you've played four deadly games. Why would you want to be the guinea pig for everybody else? Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, they didn't know he was going for first and, like, what the game was. Like, they probably could have reversed it. Like, 17 could have gone first. So, well, I mean, they told them. And at, after the first eight picked the middle number, they said, this is the order of play. That's what the numbers are. Because they said, we're giving them yeah. a hint. So, Ugh, like, I don't know. He's he he is just one guy to get by by the skin of his teeth. Yeah, and it's interesting because like from the beginning, you've seen he's just gotten by by the skin of his teeth. Yeah, he barely survives pretty much every round. Oh my god! Yeah, just barely. Yeah, that damn umbrella. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, like the point of this game, I think like that. Once I walked out of there, if I was number one, I saw the thing. I was like, I would be like, what the hell? I'm like, I'm gonna die. There's no way I'm gonna correctly guess 18 times. The, the number one guy just ran, did whatever, which is probably like the most honest thing that somebody would do. Well, that was number. Well, number one was like he got one right and he died. Then the second oh, okay. one, it was number three who ran like four of them and got and then got far and then he died. That's, that's exactly how I'd handle it. Like, fuck, like screw it. Like, let's just run. Like, you know what I mean? Because yeah. there's no way you're figuring out all of them. Yeah, I think also the game design on this one is like the most fascinating one of the bunch because the way the order is, is like and with the time lift factor in, you have I think like 15 minutes to get across the whole thing. It's, yeah, everybody too. It's like because nuts. like yeah, you're in the back, you get the advantage, you see everybody fall before you, but you got the clock running on you anyway. Yeah. Um, did you know though, I saw behind the scenes what they did to get the actors true reaction is they didn't know which ones yes. stable and not stable, and they would fall and drop. Yeah. Oh my God. I was like, that's great. I love that. That was awesome. I mean, like they didn't fall, you know, till their deaths, they it, fell a couple of feet. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. I really did like the end there. We had, first of all, like we had like the, the red shirt, and our three main characters were left with Song Wu, uh, Sebiak and Ji Hung. And they had the one guy in front of them who claims he's a glass factory worker. He seems he's figuring it out. Then at the end, they, they, the hosts of the game cheat and say, you know what? Like, we can't let him have it easily. So they sh- shut the lights off. So he can't figure out the difference. At the mm-hmm. end, as time's running down, Song Wu basically says, you know what? Like, screw you. You got to move. And he basically just shoves him to his death. And that's when you realize, like, com- he's made a complete heel turn. Song Wu is basically the bad guy of the show. Yeah, it's crazy. And then um, the way 101 died was probably the best way for him because he screwed over. Uh, what's her name? It's me, Neo, or yeah. her name. Yeah. Like she just grabs him and then she just takes him down and yeah. everything. Yeah. Like she's like, you know, like I know I can't win against you, but I know I can take you down with me. Yeah. And I thought that was like so intense. It was so cool. 
He has a great moment, too, because, like, that guy was asking for it the whole time. He's like, yeah, you guys go. I'm not going to die for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He was, like, you know, he was just one big bully, yeah. basically. I hated it. But, yeah, uh, I just, when that glass exploded, too, it was intense. Yeah. And he also, like, he's the cartoon mustache twirling villain of the show where you're like, you, yeah. you, you just know he's bad and you he has no <laughs> redeemable qualities. But Song Wu, they hide him in plain sight very well with how villainous he actually is because people forget, like, is there how long a show is? Episode two, he's the one who says, hey, like, we can vote. We can get out of here. And then as soon as he sees the money reveal, like, how much it is, and he's like, oh, I'm going to stay. <laughs> yeah, because he's horrible he's yeah. a horrible being in so much trouble yeah we had that then we see how he screw how he screws ali in the fourth in the fourth game so happens in this game then after the fifth game before the sixth, they had the dinner for the three of them we see that sambiaki has got an injury from the sec the fifth game when she got a piece of sh piece of glass like flew into her into her gut she's yeah. struggling and then jihung goes to get her help and sung Wu kills her in between games yeah. And he says that, oh, don't worry, he won't kill you. Yeah. He's not going to do that. Yeah. Of course like, he's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, Ji Young loses. Ji Young, like, Ji Yeah. <laughs> he's way too trusting. Because I know they were childhood friends, and I'm sure that's a factor in it. But at the same time, like, you've seen what he's done the last couple of games. You have to, you, he got out, he beat Ali. So you had to figure something was wrong. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they knew about Ali, what he did to Ali, though. So, I mean, like, that will I'll give Jiang the benefit yeah. of the doubt. But he definitely knew the whole thing with the glass. He really watched it. Yeah, I know. Like, he was literally, like, right there. Like, yeah. <laughs> crazy. Ugh, that made me so upset when he was, like, you know, and ugh, just he's, like, I, like, said that, like, you wouldn't kill her. Like, all that stuff was, like, intense. That was, like, such a great scene. It was a fantastic scene. I will say the one thing that did throw me off, though, the American, like, rich guys showing up to watch these things really took me out of it. Like, it was so, 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 so bad. Even on, even on the subtitles, it was awful because they were talking English, and you could tell they had no idea how to write, like, write mustache twirly, like, American villains. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could just go for, like, you know, news, like, what you take from the news or what you assume of a different country. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. I kind of like brushed that off as well. It wasn't. They they talk. Like, they talk like robots. They didn't actually talk like people. Yeah, I mean, for the dub version, it wasn't. I don't know. It was probably the same guy, but yeah. I. It wasn't terrible, terrible. But it yeah, was, I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. That took that took me out of it for a bit. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, these are like yeah. actual cartoons. They're not like actual people. Yeah, he was like a like an oil miner. You know, yeah. like those like classic like. Yeah, you know, rich, larger than life people, rich old white men. Yeah, yeah, which you know, I'm sure they know. We know where that he got his inspiration from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before we get to the last game, I want to touch on back on the plot of uh, Jung Ho, the undercover cop, and then we find out that basically the man, the mask, the front man from the whole thing is his brother, and he shoots him, and then we get no resolution on that either. Yeah, well, I think that's there's a reason for that, um, but I think it, a big thing to mention is that his brother won the game in 2015. Yeah. So, you know, he's been missing for a couple of years. He did win the game. So I know earlier I said like the workers could be past winners. I don't know if it's like, that's a thing or, you know, we now know the frontman is a past winner and everything who knows the rules, who knows everything. Um, but I'm thinking that when he got shot in the shoulder, he did survive the cop, his brother. 
Yeah, because like that's one where like they didn't show you the body, but like I so say, you so I think you're led to believe he's still alive in some format. I know the directors are like that's a story he explored more if there's a season two. I'm like, could yeah, we, like could we at least just get him like popping up like in the water here? Just just leave that and say, oh, like he survived, and not like leaves a dangling thread. Like, I know that was a that was one that could have answered very easily. No, I agree. I I guess they're just maybe he didn't know if it was gonna survive yeah. this, like if it was gonna do so well. I don't know why I said survive, but like what if it was gonna do so well? I don't know. I'm making excuses for somebody I never met. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then we get to our final game, which is the original Squid Game. It's one v one. It's Sangwoo and Ji Hung, and they end up not even playing the game, just having a big fight. And at the end, like Song like Sangwoo is down. Ji Young has a choice to just go win and end the game himself and claim the victory. He says, No, we're like, I want to get out with him. We're not gonna win any money, and we're just gonna get out alive. And Sangwoo, I think at this point feels guilty about all he's done and says, No, you're gonna win. He just basically like takes a knife to his own neck and kills himself. And like that's like a really intense way to end the squid game. Yeah, I honestly think it wasn't more for guilt. I yeah. think it was more for I am in so much trouble if I come out here with no money. Yeah. He said, "You know, what, I'm gonna, I'm, yeah." He said, "I'm gonna like, I'm, ta- I'm just taking, taking the bullet myself, as opposed to like whatever I'm gonna deal with." Exactly. That's that's what I took away from it. Um, I just knew that he could not survive if yep. he didn't have the money. Yeah, and then Jiang gets out. You know, he's wins the equivalent of thirty eight million dollars in the U.S., which is like absurd. And then you, you see that he's like so disgusted with what he had to do. He just does, doesn't touch the money at all. He like lives his normal life. That's what he normally does. His mom died while he was in the game, and that sort of breaks him. And then we see, like, he just goes around trying to do things. He checks in on uh, Sambayak's do- like, uh, brother, helps set him up, gets down to the orphanage. We get this ridiculous ending. Uh, this is, I think, very controversial, and a lot of people are in and out of this. But mm-hmm. the old man not only didn't die from the marbles, he's alive, but he actually is the creator of the game. And he created the game as a way to, in his twisted worldview, like, trying make level the playing field for the have nots. And I'm like, this is like the most like twisted, like Thanos logic I've seen in a real per- real life character I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, like he, he said that he created the games for rich people to have like some sort of joy, which I was like, yeah, that's like giant red flag. Yeah. But then he was like, Oh, well I'm dying. So I wanted to be a part of it. So at first I was like, Oh, you know, you know, my first like thought process was oh he was like going to die like he was just gonna like have a fun way to go out but then i realized like they were protecting him because like they definitely didn't shoot him in the marvels game and then if you look back like i don't know if you've seen the first episode again uh when they're doing red light green light he's everybody's green if they're not moving like because they get scanned he does not get scanned at all yeah like he's a just giant loophole through this whole thing yeah yeah, and he's that just annoyed me. And I'm like, oh, a the cheating death thing is is cheap. We've done that plenty of times. That was that was frustrating. And then like his explanation was really lame. It's like if, again, it felt like very like it felt like there was a little bit of inspiration from Thanos and Endgame trying to like make him seem more noble than he actually is. Yeah, I just I don't know like the whole like and I understand why they did it. It's just like you know the bet, the last bet. Yeah, but if somebody helps that drunk man, yeah. and it's always. Jiang always gets by by the skin of his teeth. Yeah. But like that whole bit, it's just like, I don't know. I just felt like, like a cheap shot. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a cheap way to end it for him. And I mean, Ji Hong is like the one person like in this show who like believes in the good in humanity and like every action he takes is sort of in that in that vein. And we see at the end here, it makes his ending makes like really no sense because he has a chance to get out and he's chance to go to America, see his daughter again and disappear. And he realizes that the game's still being held. He steals a car from like, I think he sees the original recruit recruit him, do it to somebody else, steals his card. Calls basically says, I'm coming after you guys. And then he leaves the airport for God knows what reason. And then that's the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a weird way to end it. I guess they could end it right then and there. Apparently we are getting a, se- an, a season two um, and a season three is what they're hoping. They're saying that season two is going to be a prequel of the games. It's going to yeah. focus on, I think, the front man. Yeah. And then season three will be Gyeong, but like, but why would you give up seeing your daughter? For me, I think the problem I have is that we don't need to see the choice being made here. We, yeah. I think seeing him run out of the airport was a little cartoonish to me. I think if you're being yeah. more cinematic, you just have him stop and like stare, like look back and then like, and, and then cut the black there. I think that's the better way to do it. Cause then you leave it ambiguous, whether he went back or he chose to move on. That's true. Like this I is mean, patently like we're like I want a second season. So here's here's a hook. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I just hate that he's gonna go back. Yeah. Just after everything that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Unless know. he's gonna be one of the leader guys, he's gonna be the new. Yeah, for for us, like Ji Hong wants to just like, end the games for entirely, so he wants to try and take it down. So I don't know how he's planning on doing that. But I know he has a lot of money, but I don't know what else he can do. Well, he get well. Didn't technically, I my thought process was he got gave it all away in the suitcase. I believe he gave half of it away. Oh, okay, got yeah. you. Like my, like you know, just watching it. It's yeah. not like I looked, you know, more into that. Yeah, he gave Songwoo's mother half the money. He's yeah, still, which he, why the hell would I understand why? But like, why would you give her his mom all that money? Yeah, well, Songwoo asked him to take care. Of, <laughs> well, Songwoo also asked him as a favor to take care of his mother, so he he did the honorable thing. But he was such a crappy dude. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I think in terms of this, I've convinced there is definitely going to do more. They, this is too popular. We have, I believe something like 94 million people have watched this worldwide. Like They are going to do another one. I don't know if it'll work, but I think they could do another one. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's just so many. Um, it's just so many like speculation on what's going to happen for yeah. the future of this. Like um, I heard that they think Ali's still alive. There's a possibility. I don't know if you heard that one. Yeah, the rumor is going to go wild on this. On this oh, thing. my God. I love all these rumors, yeah. too. I'm like so invested in all of them. I'm like, yes, like, you, give me Ali. Like, you know, give me, like, all this, like, backstory. It's crazy. And you know there's going to be a movie version of this someday. There's going to be – they're going to make a movie because this is going to make – this too many people watch it. Why this thing can make, like, billions of dollars, so. That and all those crazy people on TikTok saying, if we get so many likes, I'll create my own Squid Game. Ugh, yeah. that's crazy. It's just right there. That's scary in itself. Yeah. I think in terms of, I think this is for me, I like the show a lot. I give it like a A minus. The ending did knock it down a letter grade, for, a half a letter grade for me. Cause I think it's too well done for me to go below that. But I think the ending for me did sour me a little bit on it. Do you have a favorite theory? I've not been big on the theory. Like Lily uh, inside podcast here, I finished the show 20 minutes before we recorded because I was very busy. So I'm not just to dive down the wormhole. Yeah. The theories. Um, do you want to know my craziest theory that I've heard? Sure. 
that the old man is Jiang's dad. Interesting. That one could be seeing why he bonded so, him so quickly. That well, more of a fact that so like remember in episode six he was saying like oh what day is it yeah and he's saying it's um I think he says it's the twenty fourth yeah the twenty fourth and he's like oh my son's birthday is in a couple of days and the first episode Jiang's birthday is April twenty sixth yeah and they both grew up in the same looking area and stuff and his yeah. dad wasn't there and all that. It was just crazy. If you want to look more into it, I just love that one. I think that's so nuts because his father's estranged. Yeah. They're like estranged from his father. But yeah, one of the notes before we move on here, I didn't mention this. I keep forgetting it, but I think it's very interesting. Note is that throughout the games themselves, they don't let the, like the contestants themselves change out of the clothes. So you see, like it's getting bloodier and bloodier as the games go on. You see, like all the cost of like their accumulating in terms of human lives to advance themselves in this game. I think that was also like a very good thematic choice. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Like I liked that as well. And just the fact that like all their clothing was so basic and, and and the choice of food as well. Like they started off having such an great, you know, amount of choice of food going all the way down to like nothing. Yeah. To the one egg to incite violence in between the games. And then they, And then at the end, they give them like this big feast because they want them to be like well fed for the final game, but leave their knives so they have a chance to stab each other in the back for that. Crazy, yeah, crazy. Such so, like those details are I really do appreciate yeah. appreciate about the show. Yeah, it's like extremely psychologically ma- manipulative, which is again very dark, very like this time of year. Also, probably help it came out now as opposed to like in the middle of the summer. Yeah, no, I'm sure they like really thought about different release dates. I'm glad they picked the fall. Yeah, spooky season. Yeah. We're going to transition off of Spooky for a little bit because now I get to some of the more like fun stuff because I have like the Sky Guys are on a few minutes. We're going to do the Lego Star Wars Halloween episode, but we'll have some fun here. And on a brighter note, we need to talk about how terrible the Leslie Hedden Temple reboot is. I'm uh, I'm a little sad we got to this part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so to reset, if you watch the show Leslie Hidden Temple in the 90s on Nickelodeon, it's back. It's on the CW. It's now an hour. But they did some things that are very, 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 very poor. So I will set some stuff up here. You know how there's six teams in the Razor Legend Hidden Temple. They cut it to four. They did not shorten the game. So you have like sort of like Supermarket Suite did last year where they had two half-hour games in each hour-long episode. They stretched the game for an hour with fewer teams. Their compromise is... We're going to hear from each team as the game goes on. So like they're on Survivor and you're getting the confessionals from them. This thing does not work. It is awfully paced. It is so bad. And the temple is the best part of the show. But the way it is set up right now, it feels like it's impossible for any team to win once they get there. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. I mean, first and foremost, why have four teams? Yeah. Why are you excluding like two of the teams? They're, they're rotating the colors because the, the second episode, I watched the, we watched the first two at this point. The Silver silver Snakes came back the second episode. They subbed in for all the other teams. Yeah, it's just annoying. You know, it's just the pain in the batakis. Like, I have my lovely Legends of the Hidden Temple coasters, which I had all set up for the first episode. It's, like, so excited. Nope, nothing. They, like, missed two of the teams. Like, I agree, too. The whole confessional thing is a joke. Yeah, because, I mean... I understand if it's a season-long show, we're following these teams all season long. Yeah. This is what Survivor does. Lego Masters is the same thing, where you chat with the teams and during the challenge, you yeah. get their mindset, which makes sense because you're going to see them for 10, 11 episodes. 
We've seen these guys for 42 minutes. I don't care what they think their thought process is for these challenges. I just want to see them do it. That and we also probably all grew up on game shows. Yeah. Nobody's ever had confessionals before. Like, I don't know why they thought it was a good idea now. They, it's because then they're trying to pad the hour. That's where they're trying to make up the lost time, which is so stupid because the problem with the show, the pacing is bad. You start with four teams. Two are gone after 20 minutes. I mean, you have 40 minutes of two teams the rest of the episode, which to me makes no sense. And to make matters worse, like, they treat it exactly like the kids' show in terms of, like, we have the announcer giving away scooters to these teens because they give away Brad Crockley's. And, like, this is a grown-up network show now. Like, you could at least make the give prizes not a scooter you can, or, like, show swag. You can, like, uh, hey, hey, you the may... Best, the best is when, I know I told you this off-air, but when they were like, but you're not going home empty-handed. You could wear the shirts that you're currently wearing. And yeah. I'm like, what the hell kind of prize is that? The shirts you're wearing. Like, so glad that I took my time out of this COVID crazy world to play Legends of Hidden Temple. Like, Yeah. Yeah, I think the first team out gets their shirts. The second team gets a scooter. And then, and then the, the second team gets the swag. And the third team gets the scooter. So dumb. So dumb. So that's... Poor, poor prizes. No one's going to want to be on this show. No, no. And we haven't gotten the grand prize yet. The grand prize this show is you get your guarantee. You can get up to $25,000, but there's a catch. You only get $2,500 for reaching temple round. If you go through the temple and get to the object you need, you get up to $10,000. Then you have to get it out for 25,000 to get the 25,000, but you only have four minutes and you don't get the third pendant. Like you did in the hit show. You only have two. So you're forced to swap, which basically feels like CW saying we're too cheap to pay $25,000 or we're going to make it so nobody can win. Yeah, because the guys who went in the first episode, that like he was doing so well, the first guy. Yeah, he still ran out of time. Yeah, no way. Yeah, No way. None of them. They can. Nobody can do it. Not a single person. And if they do, it's not within four minutes. No, because it feels like to me, like the way it's up, because I remember during the original show where you had the pains of life you gave when you ran into Temple Guards. You had an opportunity to win three. That way yeah. you, you could you wouldn't have to swap and send your partner and waste all the time. You can only win two in this current format, which again, you, what do you do with all this extra time? You can't give them a chance to win the third one at least? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And then the stories on top of that are like, I was so bored with all the stories. Yeah. And they were so long and they're asking these questions. I'm like, I was actively paying attention and I probably couldn't answer some of these. Yeah, the cartoons are not great. They do have D. Bradley Baker back as Olmec, which is good, but like they're relying on him too much. They just yeah. let, they just want to like hear him talk for like again to waste time. That's really the whole point of those segments. Yeah, and I just don't understand why we just can't include more games. Like, there's yeah. plenty to choose from. Like, yeah. and plus this is 2021, we can probably do new, more exciting games. Yeah, because my my pitch is this: I saw it's my like, okay. Here's what you need to do: you need to have all six teams there. You cut one after the after the first game after after the swim you get to the get to the temple area. You get rid of another one on the step on the steps to do the questions. Then you just expand the temple games, just whack them out one at a time. Yeah. Give, give every team advance team a pendant, but you have three pendants and you have a chance for the team to get through. And that kills and then, the that gets you through the entire time. It's crazy. A, either that or you do it the traditional way and you play it the old school style and you only have you only do the four teams, but do it two half hour episodes each time instead of dragging out for an hour. Yeah, I mean, like I know you're saying that. Um, uh, what's what's their faces did the game right? The grocery supermarket sweep does that. 
I keep saying grocery sweep. Yeah. I don't know why. It's because I get it mixed up with guys' grocery games. So like, hopefully if they do get renewed, there will be some serious like reconstructing or they film these already and they're just waiting on feedback. So CW, uh, I hope you are listening to this lovely podcast of Mike's and you change it and change it quickly so we can watch this and be happy well, about it. Well, I think these 10 are, these, this season's done. They filmed all of them in a row. So, I mean, you're going to get the same thing every time. I'm convinced of that. It's like, if they get a season two, maybe they'll listen and change some things. As Supermarket Suite did change some things in season two of their reboot. They added an announcer, which is good. They actually explained some of the rules better. They got rid of the momentum killing part of the final sweep where it was stopping and choosing. Now it's just go, 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 which I think is better. I yes. just don't know if they're going to get to a second season because it's this is such a bad product. No, yeah. I mean, I, I will be surprised, honestly, if they do get that second season. I, I would be shocked to get a second season. Even CW, the standards are lower in terms of viewership. The fact yeah. that they are only willing to give away so little money for this show, like just tells you that they are not seriously invested in it. That and they're not doing any of the people who watch the show any justice either. Like any of us, like kids, like, you know, us adults now who are watching it for the nostalgia, nobody's happy about it. I haven't heard any like positive reviews on it. No, because this is one where I think Kobe played a role in them cutting the teams down, but the product sucks. I had to say, I would want it to be good. It sucks. Yeah, I mean, plus like, co- I mean, you know, COVID's still a, an intense and important thing to f- worry about, but we now have, you can like have more teams now, like more people are vaccinated and everything. Yeah, I'm sure it was just, they just hid behind COVID for budget cuts. That's my, that's my guess. Oh, that's true. That because, could be totally because, because Because a lot of the budget went into the Temple run, which is by far the best part of the show. It's great. But oh, just- yeah, the Temple's awesome. I was... It's really exciting to see, like, everything, all the rooms. Yeah, but, again, there's no, not a time to do it. They have four minutes to get through it, and you have no chance to have one person get through the temple without an issue. Also, the best is uh, that we're they're all adults. Yeah. Like, how sore do you think everybody is after running through those? <laughs> yeah. It's just insane because, like, those are things, that, like, also, you don't account for. In fact, the adults are bigger, and they take them more time to, like, maneuver through some of these tiny spaces. Yeah, and, like, the fact that you're not as agile as you are when you're, like, 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we'll leave it there. I think this uh, this is a pass from us. We're not, we're not recommending this one. Definitely not. That's a two thumbs down. Yeah, two thumbs down, but I want, do want to thank you for coming on today. Take all the time. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, I hope you follow social media, Kyo, some of the stuff you're up to. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at S-D-E-R-O-S-5. Or no, S6. Jesus, why do I do this every other time I'm on here? But it's Estrosa6 at Twitter. And then you can follow me. Literally, just Google my name. You'll find me. I'm very easy to find, Sam DeRosa. Um, But hopefully next season, I'll have more fun tweets to put out about my home run lights. There we go. So, Sam, thanks again. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Mike. Poe Dameron crash lands on Mustafar. Darth Vader's castle is transformed into a destination hotel. Creepy tales are told and more as the Sky Guys are back to recap the Lego Star Wars Halloween special. All right, we are back here wrapping up the Just End the Suffering pop culture party for Halloween year number two with a special Star Wars edition of the Sky Guys talking about Lego Star Wars terrifying tales. Joining me today, the man whose voice you heard in our narration a minute ago, Pete Constantori. Pete, how are you? You know, I always come on here saying I love talking Star Wars, but 
as a kid, I loved Legos as well. Yeah. So this this hit home. This was nice. This was this was a fun time for me, and and I'm I'm excited to talk about it in in brief here. Yeah, I mean, I do love the Lego Star Wars. I mean, I got some right here. I got R2 right here. I was already showing off uh, Mando and and Grogu before. So I got my Legos here, too. I'm good to go. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, the, I, I always loved Legos. I mean, the things that Lego was doing nowadays, uh, they just released like a Titanic, which is like their biggest set ever, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. Uh, they've been they've been just climbing to the top when it comes to just like, you know, kids toys, but also now like collector's items. This is, this is a lot more than just, you know, kids building. Um, battleships. Yeah. Battleship. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, for them to, to get into the video game scene as well as now like the shorts and the movies and stuff like that, it's, it's really cool to see how they've grown through the years. All right. Also joining us to the other half of the dueling monstrosities. Nick Frietta is here. Nick, how are you? Doing great. Um, I definitely was a big Lego guy too growing up. I mean, not as big as you guys, but still pretty big. But I'm excited to talk about this. And as Pete said, like getting into video games and stuff, I'm also really excited for the Lego Star Wars um, Skywalker Saga game to come out. I had the, um, the which one was it? What was it called? I think it was called the Complete Saga. One to yeah, six, so I think. It was one to six. I had that on PS3, I want to say, and I'm excited to play this one now. And I guess PS5. I get delayed. It's supposed to come out already, I think. But. It's been delayed several times because development, a little bit of development hell, but they keep saying yeah. it's coming. But I don't, I believe what I see at this point. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. It looks like I feel like it's too close to not come out. It yeah. will come. But I don't know when. Yeah, and and have you ever been in, inside the Lego store? When was the last time you went there? I, I used to work actually right across the street, but yeah. I we used to just look from the window. Yeah. I, I never really went inside, but I would look through the window. It is a magical place. I do like to go there every once in a while. Oh yeah. I was just there. I just got the Lego fender set. Nice. Fender car. Yeah. No, yeah. I had to. Yeah, I scooped the Lego advent calendar. I always love to do that on, around Christmas. Well, let me just confirm that this is where I think it is. No, nah, I think I'm thinking of the wrong one. This is Rockefeller Center, right? You might be that one you're talking about because there is one down down that direction. Like I went to the one the Danbury Mall recently. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of the one that's on. Um, so I used to work near the Flatiron Building in New York City. Yeah, it's down okay. by it's down uh, by Avenue and, of the Americas. That's where I used to work by the Flatiron Building, and there's one right there. So yeah. I, I didn't know there were a ton. I thought there was just one massive one. I didn't even know there were many. There's some in, there's some in malls. So like I know like the Danbury Mall in Connecticut has one. Another Palisades Mall has one. So there are more places but, to go find Legos. You want to know an interesting fact about Lego? Sure. It's not the not the biggest, but Lego is one of the biggest privately owned companies in the world. Yeah, I believe it. you yeah. cannot buy shares of Lego. Yeah, so we are giving a nice PSA for Lego before we get into the Lego Star Wars product. So before we dive into this one specifically, I want to ask, like Pete, I'll start with you. Like, how many of these Lego Star Wars things have you seen? There was a bunch on Disney Plus. You watched any of them before today? Um. Not the Lego Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, I've watched um, the Lego movie. Yeah. Seen that, but none of the Lego Star Wars uh, movies or shorts or anything like that. Yeah. Nick, did you watch the thing, the one last year they did, the ho- the holiday special one? Yeah. I watched that. Um, what was it called? I don't I think it was called the holiday special, right? I think it was the Lego Star yeah. Wars holiday special. Yeah, I watched that, and that was pretty good. I don't really, honestly, I'm going to be honest, I don't really remember what happens. I remember Ray was in it and she kind of went back in time, I think. Yeah, she was time traveling. Yeah, I, I watched that. I liked it. Uh, I liked this one as well. And then I've seen, 
think it's called yeah droid tales i watched yeah. droid tales there's five episodes it's like r2 and 3po telling stories of just old things that happened in star wars it was pretty fun too does it work better than the droid episodes of clone wars rebels that he hates yeah because he, they're not the main characters they're just telling a story remember in um in revenge don't remember the sith return of the jedi when uh 3po is telling them on the story of darth vader he's telling all the ewoks story yes it's like that but they just show it yeah it's like and then this happened and it just shows you what happened all right, for sure. So we're going to go into the spoilers here. And since I played the general spoiler song at the start of the time of the podcast for all the stuff we've covered today, we did Doom, we did Midnight Mass, did some Squid Games, a little bit of Legend of the Hidden Temple. But we are going into spoilers here for the Lego Star Wars Terrifying Tale special on Disney+. Plus. And if you have not watched it, I'm going to give you the warning. Again. I know this is, again, not something to be heavily spoiled, but just in case, this is what you need to know to get out of here. I know Pete Costa, I appreciate that uh, sound drop. Uh, yeah, I mean, is that what we're using for the spoiler now? The the, the uh, St. Louis Blues goal song? That's what we're for using the- for, the, for the spoilers on this podcast specifically. Oh, wow. Okay, so I was a little confused. I'm like, wait, did, did the St. Louis Blues win? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, we did that just because I played the Star Trek spoiler spoiler red alert aside at the top of the podcast. So this is for every individual segment we're doing the Gloria. I like it. Yeah, that's that's great. All right, so let's get into the general plot here. So, Nick, you want to take us through here the general storyline? Don't give me too specific. So, they're trying to build a hotel on Vader's castle. <laughs> I I guess is is the main point. I guess you could say, and uh, you kind of go through old, or you get through three little stories. I guess there's four. Is there four or three? There's, there's three. There's three little stories. There's the one with Kylo Ren. There's the one with Darth Maul. And there's the one with Luke. Yeah. And they're all pretty fun. They're all pretty good stories. You know, obviously none of this stuff's canon. And it it's a fun little adventure. All of them. I liked one of them especially more than the others. We'll get into it. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, not to spoil anything further, I guess we'll, we'll discuss it as we go. I don't want to give the whole plot away, but. It, that's essentially what happens is they're trying to build a hotel on Vader's castle in Mustafar. Yeah. And Pete, the other thing that Nick didn't mention, Poe Dameron crashes there at BB-8 and they're basically the protagonist of this story. Yeah, no, I, I liked how they kind of took it chronologically, right? Yeah. So resistance is kind of still very prominent. You know, Poe is a very, very famous pilot at this point. Um, so I, I liked it. I like how they just continued it and it wasn't just like, we're going to throw it somewhere in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And he land, he crashes on the planet with his X-wing is damaged. Right, he runs the five like uh, resi- like a fir- re- first order starfighters. Like, why the hell you guys not know this battle's over already? So he gets shot down. Then he goes and meets Gribala the Hut, which I thought was so damn funny. He's like the capitalist venture here, and he gives zero run for his money. He's the worst Hut I've ever seen. Horrible. Yeah, I, I don't. I I don't. Uh. Can we get away from like the Hut family for like one? Maybe two movies or shows or something. <laughs> like, yeah, can we just like move on? Yeah. Yeah, Nick, would you have any thoughts on Grabala the Hut? No, just a pretty terrible character. <laughs> but not I guess not as bad as Zero, honestly. I mean, Zero was the main focus of the movie, right? Yeah. 
guess it wasn't really the main focus here, so it wasn't that bad. No, Grabala, I don't know if you, either of you guys are Star Trek people, but they, he reminds me of like a Ferengi from Star Trek, where all he cares about is just money, 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 capitalism. Uh, not, not, not a Trekkie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't get that. Reference. All right, well, the Trekkies out there understand the reference, so those of you who did, good job. So we're going to go into now, basically, we see like a Sidious type of mini clone Lego guy named Vanny, who I love how to say he calls him Darth Hideous at the beginning of the podcast. That, that the show that was very funny, but then he tells us three tales about Sith artifacts he finds in there. Let's go through each of them real quickly. The Lost Boy, which is the Kylo Ren short. I'd say I think the worst of the three by far. I think seeing Kylo showing the dark side and his basically being recruited by a street gang is, is funny, but I think the only evil thing here, Nick, is Christian Slayer being the voice of Red. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> It was. Um, so you you mentioned this earlier than I wanted to bring this up, but I'll bring this up now because you mentioned the voices. And I think there's a huge positive, but also a huge negative with it. So they got a lot of great people in there, like Christian Slater. Or I, you can name some others. Probably you were naming them off. I don't really know why off the top of my head, but they got big names in there. And that's awesome. But a lot of the characters who were known characters just sounded nothing like the character and it kind of draws you away from the experience a little bit that's like my only negative i have to say about this whole terrifying tale experience is like the voice of luke and vader it doesn't sound like luke and vader and it kind of draws me away a little bit yes i noticed they they did draw on some of the clone on some of the clone wars uh character voice actors or some of the characters they work for them but i just feel like like maul maul obi-wan is voiced by james arnold taylor in there I think yeah, and that works. But some of the guys didn't sound like they should, and that kind of throws me off a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to see here. I'm gonna go back and look at the cast of the holiday special while I try and fill that in. See the whole got- time I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm listening to his name is Ren, right? Yes. And I'm like, who is this guy? Who I know his voice, and I had to look it up, and then saw it was him. But I, I, I definitely I recognized that voice right away, and it sounded it sounded good for you know for that. But like for the voice of Kylo Ren not being Adam Driver, it throws me off. Yeah, Pete, what did you think about the Christian Slater appearance in here? Uh, I mean, cool, but I think the whole thing that threw me off was that Kylo Ren's backstory of becoming a Sith Lord is a biker gang. <laughs> I, I obviously everything that you know Nick was saying, this is all not canon, but like I I have it's it's so bad it's good in my opinion, right? Like a biker gang is what made Kylo Ren. And Kylo was like, I don't even know about this. Like, I don't think this is what I want. And then like he winds up fighting. Slater's character it it was it was fine you know I you know not the best but I, I found it funny I thought it was cool yeah I thought we I thought we that's all we really need to know any any funny bit stick out of you from that story Nick or no nothing specific not really that was my least favorite story um I think I, I guess yeah I, never mind yeah. <laughs> I have, I have nothing I have to say positive so I'm just gonna stop I think it just goes to show you that the resist that the sequel stuff is the, the worst of the Star Wars because of the easily the least compelling story of the three all right well you said it so now I'll jump back yeah I stopped myself because I didn't want to sound too negative but you said it so yeah because like that's the best we come up with is that of all the sequel material we have well Mike I, I'm I'm proud because I think that Nine months ago, ten months ago, your opinion on some of the Star Wars stuff after seeing a lot of the extended material is changing slowly. And you're kind of seeing where a lot of people come from who are critical on some things Star Wars related. Yeah. 
I also did pull the voice cast from last year's like a holiday special, just for reference here, comparison to this year's cast. I mean, they had some of the movie actors in it. Anthony Daniels was in it, C3PO. They got Billy D. Williams for Lando. I think they had D. Bradley Baker do the clones, but right, Daisy Ridley's not there as Ray. I think Kelly Marie Tran's there as Rose Tico, but like a lot of the other people are like either Clone Wars, Vets, or just random people. They had more big names in this in this cast than they did, but like none of the actual like Star Wars actors. Which is, I think, a good thing and a bad thing. You don't have the right actor, so it throws me off, but at least you have big names. Okay. Let's go on now to the second story, which is the dueling monstrosities. And Pete, we got a Clone Wars reference in this. We did. Yeah. We did. You have to you have to remind me though, because I watched this a couple days ago. Yeah, we we actually got them referencing Maul being resurrected by Mother Talzin. Yes, yeah, yes, you're right. So so can we I think that was the right voice. I think that was her voice. It might have, it sounded like it, but can yeah. we can we just can we can we just appreciate the fact that they try to use like a um a probe droid? Yes. Be his feet, yeah. And then they just went, went back with the whole spider thing when that's what his original original stuff, his original feet were or yeah. legs were. Yeah, uh, I found that funny, and I just think his whole back and forth with Darth Sidious was great too. Yeah, I I, I actually enjoyed his character a lot. I, as a whole, I know we'll talk about this later too. As a whole, the movie with or the the forty minute short was hysterical. Yes, because it was so bad. Yeah. Like it was just it was it was this dry humor that always cracks me up. This stupid, dry, dry humor that's just like, okay, I, I get exactly what, what's going on here. It's terrible, but every little joke that's cracked, I laughed. Yeah, it's typical Lego humor. If you watch yeah. a Lego thing, you, you know yeah. exactly what you're getting. They, they deliver. Yep. And I did think it was funny that after, years and years after the Clone Wars was canceled and we didn't get the Grievous versus Maul fight, we only got it in the comic book. Now we got a version of it here. I thought it was funny they showed back up. Nick, what do you think about that? I was excited to see it finally. Yeah. Those are two characters that did they ever really cross paths? No. No. Same with same with Anakin and Grievous. Much as so many times they almost crossed paths, they never did. But yeah, cool to see that happen finally. Two characters that you were very similar. They were around at the same time, kind of played a similar role for their respective movies and the main movie trilogy, like prequel trilogy, but never really interacted. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I kind of like Boba Fett and um, the hell's her name. Captain Phasma. Like yes. they never interacted. They're kind of similar characters in a way. And it'd be cool to see them see each other. Maybe they will in the book of Boba Fett. Yes, I Tom, doubt it, but maybe Yeah, you never know. But I will say also, I do think it's funny that the Darth Maul sort of adapting your comic was a source of inspiration for, for at least part of this sort I hear that was a good comic. Yeah. So maybe it's one we should do it in offseason, like uh, Sky Guys. Go back and read that comic and review it. I, I, I can read a comic or two. I don't know how you get your hands on that. How do you, how do you even buy comics? Do you do, like, I would guess Amazon eBay. or eBay, maybe. Yeah, eBay. Facebook Marketplace. Yeah. Well, while we look for that, discuss that one, I think we should go on to the third and final tale here. I think it's the best one by far, the Wookiee's Paw. And I think. P, I like this because it was very much sort of like the Star Wars version of what if, like what if Luke actually joined the Imperial Academy? Yeah, no, I, I actually really enjoyed it. I just found it was just so cheesy. Like, I want to be better. Yeah. You know, you know, Wookiee Paw. Oh, I'm better. And then it's just it just ends up being like, oh, you accidentally blew up the Death Star. Yeah, great. <laughs> you know, it was it was pretty funny. And I, I did like the what if factor to it. Um, I think 
somewhere on Instagram, I saw like a what if with Anakin, Obi-Wan and Ahsoka Tano, if they were all Imperials. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty cool to see. So it I was, that too. yeah, it was, it was a cool, I think it would be cool to do it in a, in a more serious note as well, but the Lego just made it 10 times better just with humor. I mean, I, I just, I feel like, I feel like you can't take them being Imperial seriously. So I think in a humorous way is the way to go. Yeah, for sure. I Nick, I did love all the callbacks of the film, whether it was Luke banging his head on the door as a stormtrooper and falling down and him carrying Vader on his back, running through the hallway when he's doing Jedi, doing Sith training and yep. all the, and him like basically learning how to force choke. That was, that one got me laughing. So I, I think this was really funny, but I think beyond the humor, I think this is, and then this needs to happen. Yeah. And I think it will, I think it will happen. I think the world Pretty much anyone who's watched this, any review I've seen online, anything on Instagram, on social media, people are like, whoa, Star Wars needs a what if. Yeah, I think I and I think it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's right at the first step, but I think it's going to happen. I, it writes itself. It's it's people have been wondering it forever. The number one thing people are wondering is what if Anakin never turned to the dark side? Obviously, you know, that's the main one. But there's so many other what ifs in Star Wars that make. I don't know. That just it would be such an interesting thing to watch. Like, I know Mike, you watched the Marvel one. Pete, did you watch the Marvel What If? So I, I saw did. like I think like half of them, maybe a little more. I can I can I may finish them up. I'm not sure, but like they were good. I didn't I didn't love them, but they were good. But Star Wars, it would be incredible. It would be absolutely incredible to see. What if Qui Gon Jinn never died? What if? Well, similar. What if? What if Luke missed to shoot the Death Star? Like. Right, all these there's tons of things you can come up with, and I would love to see them all. Yeah, and P, I think it's also interesting here. I think even the idea of the what if is like not even the fact that we have to do like live action. We could do what Marvel did in animated. Yeah. We have a talented animation studio doing stuff like Bad Batch. Like that's an animation doing what ifs every like do like ten of them for a season. That'd be fun. Yeah, I mean they have it all under their belt, right? They had Clone Wars, they had Rebels, they had. um Bad Batch now, I mean, they can easily do animation. What if 10-episode season just hit every single arc? I mean, even if you want to go, you know, as long as like maybe a 30-minute episode, I feel like that would be appropriate for it just to get everything in. Maybe you need a 40-minute, I don't know. But like Nick was saying, it writes itself. You, We, we all know as Star Wars fans what we want to see. So it's it's not like they have to go to the depths of the writer's you know, desk to see where to go with certain aspects. It just, it's literally already there. Yeah, for sure. And Nick, my favorite moment of this was Leia being in the X-Wing in the final Death Star fight there with Obi-Wan flying on Sarah. It's like, oh, thank you for saving me. So it's sort of implying in the What yeah. If universe that Obi-Wan lives if Leia is the, is the one leading the vision, not Luke. Yeah, so maybe Luke joining was a bad thing. Cost Obi-Wan his life, but also one more thing I want to add on the what if is the one negative we might get there is Marvel. I don't know why it is they're able to get those voice actors. I really doubt Star Wars can get the voice actors. I don't know why I feel that way, but I've just I just do. I feel like for the first of all, there's no shot in the world Harrison Ford is doing that. Oh, hell no, there's no shot in the world, but like. I, mean, I get Mark Hamill would definitely do it. He, he does a lot of voice acting, but like, I don't know. I just don't feel like other people would do it. And I, I don't know why I feel that way. I don't know if you guys agree. I know a lot, also a lot of people are not, no longer around. A lot of people were passed on, but people who are around, like 
would Hayden Christensen do it? Would would uh, Ian McDermott do? I don't know. Yeah, it's like, would you be able to get like even not even them like they couldn't? Could you get Oscar Isaac to show up for one of these? You wanted to use Poe in something? Yeah, I mean, maybe it was easier for Marvel because their universe, I guess, was only like two or three years ago that we were all seeing Endgame. Yeah. And all of them are in it. And it was only like two years ago. It's a big deal. But if you got to grab somebody from the prequel trilogy now, you're talking 16 years since the last movie. Well, the show that matters did come back for the, the sequels. Yeah. Which blows my mind. Right. So, I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to be that guy where say the price is right. But I mean, who knows? They they might. I mean, we don't know who's coming back for the Obi-Wan. Right. There's been rumors and, and cast listing, I'm assuming, right, of, of the yeah. Obi-Wan show. Yeah. People are coming back for that. So it, as much as Harrison Ford may have said publicly or or acts like he doesn't want to do it, he probably would. Yeah, I, I think, would love that. I don't think he ever would. I think you might get some of the ones who are coming in for the show. Like you might get Ewan McGregor to show up, be Obi-Wan. I could see that happening. If you, if you can't get Harrison Ford, take the guy from the other movies, the solo guy. What was his name? I don't Alden, want him. I don't want Aaron, Lynch, Aaron Reich. He's better than... This point, yeah, better than James Franco doing it, yeah, or someone random. I don't know why I said him. Yeah, I can't imagine what a James Franco Han Solo would look like. Yeah, I don't know. I just think in terms of the what ifs, though, I do think like you could get a lot done here with like. Don't forget the voice actors in Clone Wars themselves are pretty good. So like, if you want to bring some yeah. of them back in, like I'll be fine with that because like a lot of them well, did a yeah, good job. A lot of the characters, like if you hear Anakin speak, you're probably more used to the Clone Wars version than you are the, the movie version with the amount of lines he's had. Yeah. And I don't think, like, it's not, like, jarring where, like, you would sh- show up and be like, oh, like, it's not, like, Hayden Christian doing it, but at the same time, like, the Marvel What Is didn't have uh, Robert Downey Jr. be Tony Stark, and you know, it wasn't that noticeable. Yeah. Most people were the same in that, I believe, but he was not. They had some of the big names were not there for those. They didn't have RDJ. They didn't have Chris Evans. They didn't have ScarJo. They didn't have Brie Larson. So, like, some of the... They did have, like, they had Josh Brolin, and they did have uh, Chadwick and Chris Hemsworth, I believe. Yeah, they had him. They had Ruffalo. I don't know if they had... Um, I, I can't, Why am I blanking on his name right now? I don't Chris know if, Pratt. I don't know. If they did not have Chris Pratt. Oh. Yeah. So, like, they didn't get the A... Most of the A right, Well, they did. Yeah, it seems like they didn't get everybody. Then. They got most of their B-listers, and, and, and to me, it sounded good. They got most of the B-listers, though, which Mar- which Star Wars didn't do for either of these. Yeah, well... They do you, do, yeah, uh, do, you, do you think that... I don't think it's... I think it was not a Lego. Probably they might try harder. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Do you think that like a, a, an actual what-if thing, they would actually try harder? Yes. Would be more inclined to say yes. I think... Also, maybe they did try, and they say no, because it's the Lego thing, but if it's the what-if thing, maybe they'd be more interested. I think with the Lego thing, I think it's easier to say, ah, it's kids who are watching. Nobody cares. We're, we're just going to, you know, put our sound like and bring in the Clone Wars people. But, like, for voice, for car- the cartoons that don't have, like, a established, like, voice actor in there, like, we don't have an animated Han Solo in there. We don't really have an animated Luke Skywalker as of yet. And, again, I could be wrong. with Re- We haven't seen Rebels Season 3 yet or 4, so I could be wrong on that. But, like, any character we don't have an animated version of, I could see them going to, like, hey, Mark Hamill, you want- here's some money. You want to come do this? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a must, though, for Star Wars. Regardless of how they do it, who they get to do it, it's a must. It's a complete, absolute. He he would do must. it. Hamill would definitely do it. Hamill, Hamill would do definitely it. do it. He does everything. Yeah. He would he would he would be on board in a heartbeat. 
Yeah, he would. And I want to see Akbar in a what if too. What do you want to see? Just him in it, or what? You want a story <laughs> revolved around that? We get we get a story with him revolved around. What if he didn't know it was a trap? We could do that. We could do what him. If they, what if they showed his death on screen? What What if he survives with Carrie Poppins? What you if, know what? I wouldn't watch the show <laughs> if, if they ever mentioned Carrie Poppins. That you know whole well they're not going to mention the actual name Carrie Poppins but like if that whole scene ever comes back up anywhere else I will watch the show I'll boycott it all right so I think that's all you need to know at the end the plot doesn't work Poe brings a four sensitive boy he meets with him to go get trained by Ray that's the end of the thing so great Pete great this uh, can I just say that Poe takes like a jab at Ray's force ability yes it was when, like anyone else like catch on he's like yeah she does it a little bit. <laughs> Like, yeah, we know. I know someone that knows a little bit about the force. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was meant to be more like, oh, yeah, like I know a person like sarcastic, but I also kind of took it as like, is that a jab at Ray? Um, I would, I would rate it a solid seven. And the reason why I'm going a little high here is because the humor factor just saved it for me. Yeah. I mean, again, this is not canon stuff. This is not deep hitting Star Wars stuff, but come on. You got a hut trying to build a hotel on. Darth Vader's castle in Mustafar, and you have this like it, just really funny plot point. So that's why I give it a seven, it, it, just from the the humor. If you want to go storyline, it's like a four or five for me. Yeah, I also will give a shout out to the Ren at the Ren story, just for the one line that was funny when Kyle was complaining. He's like, "How long did Luke actually train to be a Jedi on Dagobah? Like twenty minutes? It's probably about the actual length of sequence yeah. in the movie." That was really good. <laughs> that was really good too. That was funny. Yeah, uh, Nick, what was your grade on this thing? I think I'll give it an eight. I loved it. I thought it was really funny. It was nothing wrong with it. It's not not going to take the story seriously, like Kylo, you know, becoming a a Ren from a biker gang, all that. So, like, you need to take it for what it is. And doing that, it was really funny. It was it it was interesting. It opened my eyes to this what if thing, which is really has me excited because I'm I'm like. I want this. I know. I said, yeah, I want it. And I, I really think it's going to happen. I think everyone wants it. Who wouldn't want it? Like, who's going to be like, oh, that's stupid. Yeah. I don't know. Don't so I'm really excited for it. And and, and I, just, I love the Lego humor. I saw the Lego movie. I also saw the, um, the Lego Batman movie. And like, they're, they're really good. Like yeah. Lego, whatever it is that they do, it's really good. Yeah. This is not an advertiser Lego, but I'm going to give it an eight as well, because again, this was, you know what it is coming in. You know you're not going to take it seriously. I still laughed. I enjoyed it. Like this is not like me cringing getting through some of the bad Clone Wars episodes. This is not the space whales. Like this is enjoyable. Very, yeah. I was, yeah. and and even if it wasn't enjoyable, I say this all the time. It's only forty minutes. It's yeah. not. It's not droid arcs in the Clone Wars where it's four episodes. As Pete said, it's a month. <laughs> A month of space whales. Yeah. Yeah. No more space whales, but we'll be back soon. We're going to be coming back to do Rebel Season 3 about a week or so from when this is out in your ears. This will be a lot of fun, but I'm going to give every guys a chance to plug some socials as we go on there. Pete, how can we follow social media? Keep us all the stuff you're up to. At PJ Story 29 hockey season's in full swing. So definitely doing a lot of retweeting. Um, we just released that podcast, uh, what, a couple weeks ago about yeah. uh, the NHL starting. So, um, yeah, it's everything's going well there. So uh, follow me there. Yeah, and Nick is not revealing yet, but it will be soon. 
Uh, yeah, you can follow uh, at Ken underscore Rosenthal, and he'll tweet whenever the Yankees decide <laughs> that they made a mistake that Aaron Boone should not be the manager. So follow him for the update there. All right. So thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. We'll be back soon with Rebel Season 3. All right, and that will do it for our Halloween pop culture party. A lot of fun this week. I want to thank all our guests. John Stanko, up the top of the show, talking Dune. Alan Austin, breaking down Midnight Mass. Our pop culture correspondent, Sam DeRosa, broke down Squid Game and Legends of the Hidden Temple. Plus the Sky Guys, Pete Considori, Nick Frietta. The Lego Star Wars Halloween special. That was a lot of fun. Market stuff like this podcast, including my New York sports organizational power rankings in terms of who's doing the best, who's doing the worst. Check out the blog over at justsetthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. Find all episodes there, including our two episodes from earlier in the week. I mentioned at the top of the show, the World Series preview with Anthony Sorbellini on Monday, NFL picks on Wednesday. Those are in the podcast feed. So your feedback and star rings as well. Help with the podcast even better going forward. So follow the YouTube page, Mike Phelps on YouTube. Video version of all of these conversations are up on the YouTube channel. You can check it out there. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Next week on the podcast, we are continuing our sports situation here. Talk some college basketball, do some NFL picks, and more. Until then, a happy Halloween, everybody.